Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we are reviewing what has been one of the most anticipated movies of the year, conveniently directed by the Marvel Cinematic Universe's arch nemesis, <laughs> and it was made here in Oklahoma, but actually based on a really terrible tragedy. We're going to unpack all of that in today's podcast because we are reviewing Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. We're going to start with a couple of icebreaker questions just to wrap our heads around what all of the guests today have to say about both the history, uh, the historical events, but also the relationship with Scorsese films. And then we're going to jump into a spoiler-free review of the film where we'll render a verdict, and then we'll conclude the show with an in-depth spoiler discussion. And man, we have an amazing panel today. I'm very excited to be joined by this specific group of individuals. Uh, But first up, of course... He's my ride or die co-host. He's an award-winning Oklahoma filmmaker, and he was excited about this movie, I think. LaRon Chapman, welcome to the show. It's good to be back. Um, you know, I feel like with the announcement of this film, or, you know, now that it's released and hundreds and, well, hopefully millions of people have seen it, um, it is the, it, it's introducing my second favorite season, you know, just behind Halloween, which is Oscar season. And I think this will be a really big player in that race. So very excited to talk about the film today. Absolutely. Uh, Laurent, I think this movie has been coming almost as long as I've known you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I, I got, I got married recently and I, we were talking about it. I was like, this movie has been coming. It's been on my mind longer than I've known my wife. Mm. It's insane. That is insane. So it's been anticipated for quite a while. And it does feel like we've been talking about this movie for quite a while. Quite a while. So it is very nice to finally see the finished product. Absolutely. So. Joining us today, our first special guest, uh, she's an arts and entertainment features writer from the Oklahoman. She's also a member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. Rejoining us from our Oscars predictions episode earlier this year, Brandy McDonald, a.k.a. Bam. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate being here. Next up, very excited to be rejoined by Sunrise Tipikani, who is now the director of programming at the Dead Center Film Festival. He also co-hosts the Real Indigenous podcast, and he's an Oklahoma filmmaker. Sunrise, welcome to the show, and congrats on the new gig. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, like always. Um, It's always nice to be in this room, and yeah, it's a a different life for me. Uh, It's very exciting, and I'm just... I, I don't even know how to contain myself sometimes. The fact that I get to go into the office every day and just like think about films and work through film programming, work with filmmakers, it's um I feel very privileged. Awesome. So, yeah. And I'm excited. I'm excited for the next year's festival. Well, I I'm excited to see what you do at the festival. when I saw the announcement come through, I was like, Sunrise, this guy like is basically born to do a this type of job. You've been involved with the festival for many years and been a really big player, but it's great to see you step into that the full time director role. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Some things just fit like a glove, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, and joining us for the first time, I'm very thrilled to welcome, she is the co-host and producer of the Real Indigenous podcast, Angela Starts. Angela, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Quiana for the invitation to join you. Well, thank you for coming. We crossed paths at Dead Center uh, very briefly because I was running around like a, a guy with his uh, chicken with his head cut off, essentially. And we spent probably five very steamy moments together in the dark. Talking to Lily Gladstone. Talking to Lily Gladstone. It's true. I was sweaty. It was a very enclosed room. We were all sweaty. I'm but, glad you clarified steamy because you went right into that in the dark. And I was like, please, <laughs> what are we saying? Then you said Lily Gladstone. Is, oh, it all comes together. All comes together. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, at Dead Center uh, Film Festival, listeners uh, may know that Lily Gladstone was in attendance. And 
We never published the the interview on my show. We uh, yeah, we we were able to. Were you able to? We did. We dropped it as an opener for women that inspire us, indigenous women that inspire us. Ooh, that's amazing. And we ran it during Indian Market. Yeah, Indian Market. Indian Market. Wow. With Jane Myers. Yeah, it's a great episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, we, uh, Jane was uh, pretty strong prey, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. We, right. we had her on much earlier show, uh, yeah. along with Sunrise. Uh, another really awesome movie, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Angela, our paths have crossed. I've listened to a handful of, of episodes of your show, which I'm a big fan of. Maybe you could tell me a little more about yourself and on also your podcast. But I don't know you that well outside of these interactions. I am a Nupiak from the Lanes and the Schaefers from. Kotzebue and Point Hope. I grew up in Oklahoma, though, and I've been making films. Uh, the first film I was ever in was Sunrise, his short really? film. Really? Yes. Oh, short film I call, Contest. called Contest. That was like 2004 when it was released. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that was yeah. the first film I was ever well, in. Very cool. Long history. Yeah. Very cool. Wow. And so after that, we made we had Film Club. And we made a film. Film Club makes a film. Mm -hmm. um, I got my degree in radio, television, and film production from the University of Oklahoma and have worked on and off for, well, ever since then in in film and television here in the state. I've worked commercials, films, television shows, all kinds of things. So very uh, like Sunrise plugged into the filmmaking aspect as well as, uh, especially with your podcast through Indigenous, uh, honing in on Indigenous stories being told. Could you elaborate? What, tell me a little more about the podcast. What's the maybe the pitch for listeners who aren't familiar? Real Indigenous looks at the depiction of Indigenous people in modern media, and so we examine not only film but also television, fashion. Gosh, what else? novels and plays, graphic novels. Yeah, graphic novels. Yeah, plays. In, uh, social media. We looked at a lot of influencers. So we, we want to take a full spectrum look at modern indigenous media and who's making it, why they're making it, how they're making it, and hold their feet to the fire if it's not really working. Yeah. Well, very cool. I Again, that's a real indigenous, so R-E-E-L, uh, indigenous. And would you say, I mean, I'm curious... Uh, as a person who has not been especially plugged into indigenous media outside of these occasional breakthroughs in the mainstream, has it really been lately that there's more indigenous media or is it just more popular? It's I'm insane. You know, we started this whole podcast just because of reservation dogs and we sure. were looking at it episode by episode. But then there was like all Rutherford Falls and then Dark Winds and then this explosion on TikTok of all these indigenous Influencers. Performer, yeah. yeah, performers, performers on jewelry, fashion, fashion exploded. Yeah, and it's just we are very fortunate. We were going to take a break between season one and season two. Nope, there was too much to cover. That's yeah. amazing. It's yeah. so great. And it's the power of representation. You know what I mean? You know, you put it out there, then all of a sudden the interest is there, and it's like you have to stop, start dispelling these myths that people aren't interested in these kinds of stories because. They're eating it up when it when it's there, you know. And so, and who's telling us that these stories aren't important? And who's telling us that these stories aren't of interest to mainstream media? You know. So, yes. But it's giving the power back to us—the power of our telling our stories. Uh -huh. And you know, that's that's who we are. We're storytellers. That we didn't have written books and stuff. We passed down our histories uh -huh. orally 
and yeah. performatively. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, I was, you know, just being up in Alaska, you know, the dances that we do tell the stories, mm-hmm. tell the history of our people. So to see it moving into new media is really very exciting. Yeah. Again, Angela, welcome to the show. So happy to have you today. Thank you for carving out time and coming straight to us from Alaska. (laughs) Now, listeners, uh, before we get into today's discussion, I just wanted to note that if you're listening and you enjoy the conversation, please make sure to support us by subscribing and leaving us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app. This is most important on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I know you get to click a couple buttons and it takes a few seconds, but I've got some stuff linked in the show notes for you to make it really easy. If you could do that for us, that'll help us get discovered by more listeners just like you. Now, a couple of special disclaimers I want to note. Uh, first up, you know, I made the joke about the Martin Scorsese uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe at the top. But on this podcast, we're probably going to laugh at times and we're going to be serious at times. But I want to make it very clear that this film is covering a very serious subject matter, which is the murder of. I want to say definitely more than dozens. It dozens doesn't seem like it's enough people, right? It, it's It's probably a lot more. The numbers fluctuate. It seems I've heard sixty. I've heard hundreds. I've heard, but not to mention there's the ongoing repercussions of the official number is twenty four according to the FBI. But almost everybody agrees that the official number is not reflective of the total number. It's also responsible for the diaspora of the Osage from this area Mm -hmm. because so many of them left in in order to preserve their lives. Yeah, sure. It's not, not a laughing matter. So I just want to make it very clear that, you know, underneath all the discussion we have today, uh, we do take that very seriously. The other thing we take very seriously is historical accuracy. And the reason I say that is because this is a podcast where we're going to be reviewing the film. We're going to be analyzing the film and we're going to be talking about the sorts of impacts the film had when it was being made, has had and will have. While we talk about the history and do our best to ensure we get all of the facts correct, please note that we will not be going down a list of comparisons to the book, for example, or doing dozens of facts checks on the history uh, as much as we are really focused on talking about how well or not that the history is presented and fits together in the context of the film and also how the creative choices taken by Scorsese and team will shape how the story is represented in the wider world. Again, though, we're never going to argue against the importance of historical accuracy. We think it's very important. I do want to acknowledge that there are many, many details that are left out of the film as an adaptation to the big screen. And if you have things that you want to say on this matter or things we don't hit on today, I do welcome your comments, your concerns, and your feedback to our inbox, which is the cinematropolis at gmail.com. We can also hit us up on any of our cinematropolis social media channels, most notably Facebook, Twitter, or threads. With that said, let's talk about what we all are bringing to the table in terms of the understanding of the Osage reign of terror before watching Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll go around the table. Listeners can't see this, but I'll start with you, Brandy, and then we'll go to Sunrise, Angela, and then LaRon. So, Brandy, what exactly was your knowledge before Killers of the Flower Moon of the murders? Before the movie or before the book? Tell me both. Okay. So my mom actually grew up in Burbank, which is in Osage County. So I actually was a little bit familiar with the history of that place because by the time my mother, by the time I was born, my mother had not lived there anymore, but that was where she grew up as a little girl. And then when she was in high school, her family moved to um, near Joplin, Missouri. And then her, my grandparents always lived in Winniewood when I was growing up. So she didn't live there anymore, but that was the place where she was a little girl. 
And so we would go and visit. She did have relatives there and things like that. And we would go and visit it. And so I knew that the Osage Nation was there. And so I became somewhat familiar with Osage history. So I knew that there was a little bit of history with the Osage when it comes to the oil boom and that there had been this reign of terror. So I was sort of like a little bit new about the history of the area and had known that there had been an oil boom and that there had been a lot of tragedy and then there was an oil bust and and how, you know, it was basically, you know, almost like areas that are depicted in the movie like Fairfax and things like that are like almost like ghost towns. I mean, they're not they're not thriving communities anymore. Pahuska is, but not the rest of Osage County. So I was sort of a little bit familiar with it. And so when, remember, the rights for the book sparked a bidding war in 2016 before the book was even published. Mm. So when that bidding war kind of broke out, I was like, what is this about? And I was like, oh, that's what this, oh, somebody did a book about that? And so then I was like, okay, what do I remember about that? And so I refreshed myself then on the history. And as as a grown person, it's like, it sinks in like much more how much more horrific it was. So I had like researched it and then the book came out and read the book and then followed extensively the making of the film. Right. So again, it was, you had a little bit of knowledge just from growing up nearby, but not, not a lot of real quality information uh, until the book came out in which you were able to really dive into it. Certainly not anything that I learned in school. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, Well said. So how about you? Yeah, it's interesting. Even though I'm of the Comanche tribe, I'm officially enrolled in the Comanche tribe. I have other tribal affiliations. My mother's Navajo and I've got some Cherokee in me. But on my father's side, he's Comanche. Um, we have cousins and families that are Osage. And so I've been around the Osage uh, through that side of the family since I was, I don't know how young I would interact with them on a summerly basis. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, the the information that was given was always sort of very informal. It was like these things happened and it's also, you know, not, not dwelling on a lot of facts because it's related to trauma. And um, it's, you know, the redirecting resulted in, you know, forms of um, resilience, I guess, you know, focusing on culture and on history that's more individual and, and alive and more maybe immediate. Uh, but it was always sort of like it, it, it hidden underneath discussions of, well, why this person wasn't around or um, what, what happened to this particular family's um, relationships to each other, to the government, to all these other different things and housing and all, all these different things. But what's interesting is like once um, I get a little bit older and the, a pipe for February comes out, that's where I start to really get a sense of it a little bit. Um, and that really um, maybe about 2013 is kind of where I really start to associate the specific facts and um, just the, the term of Reign of Terror or something that I would hear. Um, but I never associate it with like the specific family uh, histories. Um, so that's, um, that, that's, that was an interesting sort of way to, I guess, cohere. Um, so by the time the, the, the grand book comes out, I felt like a, I was able to suddenly bring and bridge all this information. I was like, oh, this is... Uh, directly related to people that I know. That's yeah. It was um, it was overwhelming a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm just out of curiosity. Did, did you having some you know having friends in the Osage? Was it something that once the the novel came out, did the more discussion come about because of it? Less discussion? 
That's a good question. I uh, I actually feel like I haven't talked about this with like my Osage relatives. You know, like that's something. Again, we um, just don't talk about. Uh, it seems like it's mostly people that are not Osage that talk about it, uh, or people that are, you know, somehow related to like the the operations of the nation or or, or affiliated with like contact with the production. Um, uh, I think that's when it comes up. Uh, although I will say that uh, an Osage friend is the one that gave me the Pipe for February book where I started to cohere a lot of the facts in a formal way. Um, but that was maybe the way to discuss it. It's not like we talked about right. it, which was very interesting. Well, uh, I'll turn to you, Angela. What is your knowledge of the, the Osage uh, reign of terror, so to speak? Well, growing up here, I had always heard that the Osage were the richest Indians in Oklahoma and because of their oil, and that was kind of the extent of the conversation. And when I was working at OU, somebody had written a script about head rights and had brought it to me to read through. And that was basically the first time I was ever aware of it. And then after that, I got Pipe for February and started that. And and the same thing, as Sunrise said, the killers of the Flower Moon, but kind of brought it all together, kind of pulled all those whispers that you hear in your community and, and just made it more clear and more defined. And it really opens up how corrupt the system was that was in place that maybe that even we didn't know mm -hmm. was happening. So it, it really opened up a different layer of knowledge about how destructive these people were to that community. Yeah. Also, again, it sounds like the, the novel really did, uh, even though there was obviously a clear understanding that something terrible happened, the novel really put it out into the, the light, so to speak. Uh, Laurent, what is your knowledge of the, of the story? Um, you know, sadly, my knowledge of the story came about as the profile for David Gann's, you know, book came out. And so even then, though, um, I feel as I feel that I still was not aware of who all was involved and the motivations for why they were involved. Um, so to be honest, the film itself now has given me, you know, like at least a nice rough draft of the who's who. You know, who who did this, who did that, um, and the why, you know. And so um, I feel like as the presence of that story became, as, as the production in our state, you know, became like my interest in that particular um, history and that particular, in this particular story, um, just kind of, you know, grew and grew and grew. And so now, now I can't get enough of reading all of the articles from different people's perspectives on it. I read an article with the Washington Post just recently um, where Molly Burkhart's grand, grandmother, you know, who um, just talking about the long-term generational trauma that's come from just her direct lineage, you know, so, um, which I also think is ripe for um, an adaptation. You know, that's a story that could be told by an Osage person um, and it would still tangentially be, you know, connected to this particular story in this history, but just not specifically about the FBI case, but how it affected the family that was the direct descendants of her, you know, I think. Um, so yeah, my, my knowledge of it came from the, the high profile of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mine's pretty similar to Leron. I had 
heard of the book and I think, but honestly, I don't think I really understood much about the story whatsoever until I saw that Martin Scorsese and Leo were attached shortly after the bidding war. And I was like, okay, so what's the deal? It's set in Oklahoma. That's interesting. So I start Googling and reading up about it and turns out it's a horrible story. I really haven't done the best job at understanding that there's been a great injustice done to indigenous peoples throughout American history. That understanding I've had clear for a while, but the specifics of it mm-hmm. have really yeah. been lost on me. And I have just haven't done the homework. The, the novel coming out really sparked my interest in a doing just more research on the story. Although I haven't read the novel myself, but I also follow the production here in Oklahoma really closely. Not as close as Bam, uh, who is in it, but I, I, you know, anytime a story would come out, I'd be like, okay, what's what's the what's the yeah. deal? What's the story? Oh, they cast X Y Z. Oh, they rewrote the script. Yeah, that's an interesting choice that we're going to talk about later. Um, but also, I mean, not that it's really super valuable in terms of my knowledge of the incidents, but I did uh, over the summer took a trip up into the Pawhuska area because my my wife is is from born uh, raised in Oklahoma, Ponca City, and we took a trip up there and uh, did give me a good visual understanding of what that part of the country uh, that part of the state rather looks like even though i didn't see the too many of the actual sets it's like okay the rolling hills it all kind of clicked into place so when i saw it on the big screen i'm like okay all of this is tracking with what i know which is not a lot yeah uh let's talk a little bit briefly about martin scorsese uh so again we're going to talk in depth about what his involvement means for the production but he's also just a really admired auteur filmmaker the guy's like over 80 years old. He's been cranking out movies since the 60s. Very highly respected. Let's go around the table. And actually, I'll start with you, Sunrise. What is your experience with Scorsese films? And what do you think about him as a director? I mean, Scorsese is always one of these directors that's just sort of been around. Um, I always have this sort of like, I don't know, list of films and filmmakers that I feel like are just, you're born and then they're just like there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have no memory of when I started to learn about him. I do remember my first time watching one of his films. I was very young. It was Raging Bull. It was like on, I don't know what, it was probably on Laserdisc, but I, I didn't understand it. I was like, this, you know, yeah. somehow his name had prestige, but I wasn't matching it to what I saw as like a boring movie mm-hmm. um, that just didn't click to like this, I don't know how, 11, 10 or 11. It's just like, too, it was too mature, both like in the form and the content. And I was like, I don't think this guy is for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know but I, I kept giving a try and there was a period where i would confuse scorsese with coppola oh for yeah. all sorts yes. of reasons yeah. yes yeah 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 and so like dracula comes out and i was like okay i'll give this guy another try <laughs> <laughs> wrong guy yeah wrong guy wrong guy but um, i can see why you think that because uh with again two in the weeds he was they were both part of that group of like at, in the at the 70s of young up-and-coming filmmakers they all came up together scorsese coppola spielberg george lucas like there was a lot of overlap and, and those guys hung out you know yeah absolutely yeah there's a very famous picture where they're like having dinner and that's like one thing that kind of convinced me because i was definitely like a bigger fan of lucas and spielberg probably for obvious reasons yeah. when i was young and i was like sure. oh maybe i should know these other people um but, uh, you know, since then, I've just sort of gotten very used to looking at his work, especially once I got into film school. It's like everybody's talking about Taxi Driver. Everybody's talking about um, – at that point, people were talking about um, uh, Last Temptation and um, the uh, Edith Wharton, um, Age of Innocence. Yeah. People were talking about that. And my first uh, understanding of him in the theater was um, Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And just uh, that is – it was amazing. 
Um, and I was like in a minority. I felt like people didn't. Um, yeah, I feel like that's a really underappreciated. I, people, yeah, yeah, it, it didn't get yeah. its due. It, it, yeah, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't get its due. But I like I I understood it with that film. All of a sudden, it had to be the size of the screen, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I could understand Taxi Driver really because of that movie. I was like, oh, okay, I get what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but it, it, since then, I you know I've just followed his career like many people have. He is definitely in a later part of his career. I am definitely more a student of his later period and more an advocate of his later period than the earlier period. And I will die fighting for some of the films that I think people think are um, not his best works. Uh, But like Spielberg, I think he's entered a new period where he's becoming the filmmaker that he's always – the filmmakers he admired when he was younger, what he talks about. I feel like he's gotten there. He talks about – he's famously been saying lately – uh, he's been talking about how Kurosawa. There's a he mentioned Kurosawa. How Kurosawa, when he was in his eighties, accepted the, an Oscar, I think. And he was like, he said, "I saw and he was said, I'm so sad because I finally discovered the power of cinema." And he said, at the time, I didn't understand what Kurosawa meant. You're making masterpieces. And he says, with the release of this movie, he's like, "I think I finally got it." And there's not enough time. I do not have enough time left on this rock to tell the stories I want to tell. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. Like I, I, I always quote that statement to students. It's like. Don't worry about perfecting. You're not going to master cinema with your first film. You're probably not going to master it with your fifth film or your tenth. Um, Yeah, Kurosawa, almost on his deathbed, Mm -hmm. makes that statement. He's like, I finally understand what cinema is, (laughs) but my life is over. (laughs) (laughs) At least he got there. At least he got there. (laughs) He had that moment. Yeah. Uh, Well, and I, I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of artists from different media and, you know, from songwriting, from, and, and some of the statements that have come across is that, it's very rarely when you're at your most height height of popularity that you're doing your best work. That it feels like you're always doing your best work after the time where you were kind of white hot um, in terms of popularity. And it's amazing the artist and the scope and span of artists that will will say that. That, you know, you're very rarely whenever you hit your peak, particularly if you hit it young, 20s, 30s, 40s, like you'll you'll later on write songs or make films whenever you're sort of like lesser known that are way better than that in your opinion, but not as many people hear them or see them. What about you, Bam? When did you discover Scorsese? Did you, did you discover him when he was white hot? Um, I discovered him uh, watching Goodfellas way younger than I probably should have. (laughs) Of course, my dad was very much an advocate of, yeah, sure. Watch this movie. (laughs) I watched a lot of movies. I probably shouldn't have um, with my dad. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I watched Goodfellas when I was, oh my gosh, I, I probably couldn't have been more than eight or nine, um, watching Goodfellas and it was electric. And so I right away was like, yeah, sure. But there was a lot of things at that. I mean, he did have limits. I mean, there were a lot of things that it's like, no, you cannot watch Taxi Driver and things like that as a, you know, as a 10 year old. Sure. So I didn't, there were a lot of. Just as violent, more sadistic though. (laughs) There were a lot of connections I didn't make. You know, like I didn't connect like Age of Innocence, like the same person directed that as directed Goodfellas. I didn't necessarily always like connect those points. And so it wasn't until I was, you know, college later that I was like, oh, he also did this thing over here. Interesting. And then saw that. So but I am a pretty big fan of a lot of his um, later work. And I think it maybe has more value because he's become more set in his values at a time when. Um, he's encouraged not to be. And and I think that comes about uh, a lot with Killers of the Flower Moon and going to Pahuska and while they were shooting it, 
and seeing all of the work that was done to like take Pahuska and turn the clock back on it to, you know, the early 20th century, yeah. new awnings on buildings, new storefronts on things, putting dirt down on a stretch of, you know, the main street just down from where the pioneer woman's places are, where there's got to be traffic that needs to go there. But, but we're paying what it takes to do that in, you know, and, and casting hundreds of extras, including hundreds of, of native American Osage and other native American actors to be, background in this instead of just hitting a button on a computer to create a crowd or something like that. So I think I've come to admire his work because of some of the principles behind it, which is that, you know, you might use technology to de-age people in the Irishman, but you don't just throw it around whenever you could actually do real filmmaking, you know, kind of thing. And I, I appreciated that. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about him being the person to adapt Killers of the Flower Moon. It, I didn't appreciate everything about him being the person to um, adapt Killers of the Flower Moon by any stretch, but I did appreciate that aspect of it. Like his uh, dedication to authenticity. Yes. As much and, as possible. And as much as possible. And that's sort of like, even if it is more expensive to, you know, shut down half of Pahuska and, and you know, put up real awnings and put real dirt down and, and put real Native Americans in 1920s period clothing, that's... That's more expensive, sure, but it's also there's also something worthwhile about that. Angela, how about you? How long have you been watching Scorsese, or what was your your discovery, and, and how long have you been following his work? I'm a very casual observer of his work. I think the only one I've ever watched all the way through is Gangs of New York. Okay, it's pretty solid. I'll start him, and I'm like, eh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and but I do love Gangs of New York. I will watch that all the time. I don't know why. And now thinking about it, you can see a lot of the parallels between something that is as sweeping as Killers of the Flower Moon and Gangs of New York. Everybody with their agenda, you know, yada, yada, yada. But even that one's interesting because it's like he was trying to he's very proud Italian American. And I think from what I understand, that was his attempt to try to tell the story of that first generation of immigrants and the struggles they had to go through in order to survive on the streets in New York. And it's another one of those, like the attention to detail and authenticity. Mm-hmm. The movie's not perfect. Harvey Weinstein kind of took a big poo-poo on parts of it, but I still love it. But hey, Laron, you tell me, what is your relationship with Mr. Scorsese? Um, like Sunrise, I probably have a, a much deeper resonance with his later work. Um, you recently did a, you know, a, a, an open question for for um, listeners about what their favorite Scorsese movie is. And mine is actually Silence. Um, and it's a movie I, I know few people have seen. Um, it made very little movie. It, it, it also didn't advertise it, you know. So, but it's one of those movies that resonated with me personally, um, just dealing with faith and uh, where I'm at with that in my life. And um, just, you know, so that, that resonated with me on a deep level. I think his earlier work, I definitely saw it. Um, but I always saw it as very hyper masculine, um, hyper masculine works where I didn't, I never felt like the women characters in his movies were particularly fleshed out in a way that that was because I, I grew up in a household mainly of with women, and so I always, I always kind of longed to see complex, dimensional women in his stories, and I think that's just not something he was always particularly interested in. Um, I think that Molly Burkhardt is one of his best. Uh, female characters on screen that he's had, you know, um, maybe I, I, I'll give uh, Sharon Stone, you know, 
in casino, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, she's great in that, you know, so, but in general, just in his, his stream of body of work, that's normally something I always thought was missing in here. I think that that's something I think he's corrected to some extent, you know, in this particular film, um, in a way that I think makes the film resonate with me even deeper. Um, but what I have always been aware of is that uh, is his influence um, on cinema. Because even those films that maybe didn't resonate with me at the time, I could see his influence and his stamp on other movies that I do did enjoy. And then, you know, kind of retroactively understood where this reference is coming from or who this is from, you know. And so um, I've always respected him as a, as a filmmaker, so. My story is pretty similar probably uh, to Sunrise and Laurent. So in my childhood, it's George Lucas, it's Steven Spielberg, it's Robert Zemeckis. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. You know, Z teenage me, which again, I'm a millennial, so you know, this will probably make a lot more sense. <laughs> Zack Snyder, Chris Nolan, the Wachowskis. Okay, there's more, but those are just some highlights. In adulthood, uh, Richard Linklater, really, really, really fan of Ryan Johnson, Jordan Peele, and among those people that it, I, I, I just feel like when I watch one of the movies, I walk away with a lot to think about and sometimes changes the way I look at things. And Martin Scorsese is one of those for me. As far as I'm concerned, he hasn't made a subpar movie since the beginning of the millennium. I'm not saying they're all on the same level of greatness. I think they're all at least good to great. And I definitely agree, Bam, with you and Sunrise. I think his last four, I guess this is, I found out a lot of people don't like The Irishman. I think his last four movies what? are all like. I did like The Irishman. I, I think all four of them are masterpieces. Like, I like so he does Wolf of Wall Street. He does uh, Silence, yeah. then he does The Irishman, and now Killers of Flower Moon, tipping my hand a little bit where we're going. But he's just one of those guys, I feel like he's making the very best, like his entire life has been building to this chapter where he is really digging into the nature of evil and sin and masculinity and applying it on a very, very deep philosophical, spiritual and even like systemic level, which we mm -hmm. talk, we see, and we see all those things in this movie. Yeah, I'm a fan. I, I admire a lot of his older stuff. Temptation of the Christ is another big touchstone for me. And the last thing I'll say is Silence, LeBron. Very deeply personal, spiritual film that I walk out of that movie and I don't think I can ever go. It's like a my spiritual journey. There's a lot of chapters to that. But there's a pre-silence, post-silence way I kind of think mm -hmm. about God and spirituality and whatnot. So it's one of those big ones. So that said, him tackling this specific story, I was really, really, really curious about what we, he was going to do. With that said, let's get into our spoiler-free review of Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, you got, you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. The Osage, they have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> <laughs> this wealth should come to us. Their time is over. This is going to be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. 
So according to IMDb, Killers of the Flower Moon is described as members of the Osage Nation in the United States are murdered under mysterious circumstances in the 1920s, which sparks a major FBI investigation that involves J. Edgar Hoover. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that synopsis is based off of the original script, not the one for the story we watched. <laughs> uh, so as we've already, all already noted, this is based. This film is based on the 2017 nonfiction novel, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and Birth of the FBI by author David Grand, the journalist from The New Yorker, uh, who did a similar treatment for The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. Uh, as we've noted er earlier, the novel investigates a series of murders of wealthy Osage people that took place in Osage County, Oklahoma in the early 1920s after big oil deposits were discovered beneath their land. And the series of murders became so large that it became known as the Osage Reign of Terror amongst the press at the time. Scorsese and DiCaprio were attached to the film in 2017, with production initially expected to begin in early 2018. Following several pushbacks and, and delays in response due to the COVID-19 pandemic, production was scheduled again to commence in February 2021, with Apple TV Plus confirmed to finance and distribute the film alongside Paramount Pictures. Principal photography ultimately took place in Osage County. So that's right. They actually filmed it where it's set. Whoa. Thunk it these days, uh, in Washington County between the spring and fall of 2021, the reported budget is $200 million, which you guys can fact check me on this, uh, is the largest amount ever spent on a film that's shot in Oklahoma. So biggest budget of film we've ever had shot here. That is true. I would think easily, yeah. Uh, I will also say that when we were on set, so I worked on it just for those who are listening, um, we talked about it as being the most expensive film on earth until Mission Impossible started shooting. <laughs> That's true. You well, probably... What's the biggest movie that shot in 2021? Because when you think about it, there was still, it was, they were still under pandemic restrictions. Yeah. 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 And Tom Cruise is a crazy person in that budget. I mean, I think that production on that sh shut down like seven times or something like that, I think. Yeah. And continues to shit shut down. <laughs> <laughs> the box office is true, <laughs> though I am still going to buy it on 4K. Uh, the film reunites Scorsese with several of his most frequent collaborators. So I'm going to go down the line. Um, this is his sixth film with Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Ernest Bur Burkhart. It is the 10th film with Robert De Niro, who plays William King Hale. It is the fourth film with his director of photography, Rodrigo uh, Prito, hope I said that right. Fun fact, he's also the director of photography on Greta Gerwig's Barbie from earlier this year. I think this guy might be getting the Roger Deakins treatment at the Oscars this year. Uh, <laughs> two nominations for the price of one. Uh, it is the 11th film with his musical, his composer, Robbie Robertson, who tragically passed away two months before the film's release. And the film has been dedicated to Robertson. Uh, the film also stars uh, the two aforementioned collaborators, De Niro and DiCaprio, alongside Lily Gladstone as Molly Burkhart. And this is uh, an actress. A, we've already talked about her. She appeared at the Dead Center Film Festival earlier this year. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about her performance here. Uh, but he discovered her through Kelly Reichardt's indie darling, Certain Women, which, Ryan, you and I hilariously caught that together at MOA. At when Ma, she, yeah, yeah, the Oklahoma film. Through. And yeah. she was there for a Q&A. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. And last but certainly not least, this is Scorsese's 26th feature film as the director. Going to start things going around the table. Uh, I'll start with you, Sunrise, then Bam, Angela. Sunrise, what did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? Um, so I've seen this two and seven-eighths times. I have yet to complete <laughs> the third, not because I didn't want to. It's, it'll happen, and I'll watch it again probably because uh, I haven't seen an IMAX yet. Um, but uh, I was conflicted the first time. 
Now, I like I mentioned earlier, I worked on it, and I, I knew going in that I was going to get distracted by my own memories of the film, which has nothing to do really with the narrative so much as um, just relationships or space and all these other things. Um, so I knew I had to go see it a second time, so I had to see it. Uh, but the first time, it, it really did affect me on just a personal level related to the material when I was able to sort of push away my own memories. Very affected. In fact, the 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 first time that I see kind of like three Osage uh, actors on screen, I like teared up. The fact that they were real Osages playing real characters, and I I I I felt like I I didn't know what to do. My body was responding in a way that like I uh, rarely experience. So there, I had this sort of like overwhelming sensation that like something powerful was happening because the. The, the real tribal members that I feel like some of them I knew and there's other people that I know in the film um, were on screen playing, you know, versions of themselves to some degree. And that was very powerful. I'm, I'm like tearing up right now. But uh, th that was like one half of the response. The other half was like, um, you know, um, I, I was uh, disappointed uh, in a, a similar way that I feel like a lot of uh, feedback that I hear from a lot of indigenous people. Um, and I, I also sort of like had to kind of like inside tell myself I, I shouldn't have been fooled into expecting what I kind of expected. And I knew better. I knew better going in. I, I knew better in so many ways. <laughs> and so like all those things I was wrestling with in the first viewing. And then the second viewing which was incomplete. The second viewing came right after watching Fancy Dance. And I was able to like, literally, I walked from one theater to the other and I was able to like think about Lily and I was more engaged in the material and I was seeing a lot more of um, maybe the Scorsese approach and the what I feel like is a message uh, after I sort of like pushed away the things that uh, I felt like were distracting me in the first viewing. And I really sensed a, a really um, intricate film um, that works in a very specific way. Um, and I had a rush to another movie. And then the, the third time I viewed it that day, I uh, cohered into a, a clear, um, I guess, uh, what I felt was like a clear purpose for the film. Um, and I feel like I need to see it again uh, to confirm um, things for me. But there's a lot of, a lot of going back and forth. But so it's a whole journey, though. Uh, I mean, and there are a lot, lot of, of emotions that are, that come in, and there's a lot of positive, negative overall. Yeah, and you're yeah. trying to figure it. So, would you say you're you're still evaluating it? I'm still this evaluating point? it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I go back and forth, and it's like it's always a constant conversation. Yeah. Especially, you know, like I was at a film festival while I was watching, and it's like it, all these other films are playing. Everybody's talking about this movie. Uh. That's the first thing people talk about, not the movie in front of them, not the movie they just saw. <laughs> we got to talk about this this monster, and um, it's, so that is also like related to this processing. Yeah, it'll be. Mike, if we have time, I want to come back to it doing the comparison between Killers of Flower Moon and Fancy Dance. And listeners, Fancy Dance is another film. It was uh, made by uh, here in Oklahoma by indigenous filmmaker. Yes, Erica so Tremblay, yeah, uh, who we interviewed on this podcast yeah. uh, back from at Dead Center. Um, well, hey, thanks, Sunrise, for being willing to be vulnerable and talk about those. And uh, I know it's probably you're still on the journey. It's I'm still like. on the journey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm still on the journey. Uh, Bam, what do you think of the film? So for me, writing about 
the making of films is is a big part of my job and it's always a long game um but this was a particularly long thing so my thought going into it was after seven years of writing about this is it going to be worth the wait and it was definitely worth the wait i seen it twice i definitely preferred it in imax although you have to be careful where you sit um for that but i i teared up at the end both times you know pretty much cried at the end both times um, and I and I did have that sort of same emotional experience of seeing Osage people. I am not native myself, but obviously, I mean, I cover all arts and entertainment in Oklahoma. And if you cover all arts and entertainment in Oklahoma for 20 years, if you haven't spent a lot of time with Native American people, you're doing it wrong. And I like to think I'm not doing it wrong. So I felt very emotional seeing real Osage people on the screen on this huge screen portraying this history that has been related to me so many times and by so many Osage people who've been willing to be vulnerable about it. Um, and so I got emotional about that. I got emotional the first time I really saw a drone shot of the Oklahoma Prairie that, yes, they came all the way here and made the movie where it should have been made, that somebody did that. And so I, I don't have a lot of frustrations with the movie itself the film itself i thought really fulfilled all the things that i wanted it to be my frustrations with it is just the system that we exist in that allow certain people to make movies and allow certain people to not make movies yeah, yeah that's really my frustration with it and i mentioned this in my review because to me it's inescapable um that i really 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 wanted this story to be told from Molly Burkhart's perspective, 100%. And it you can't get there under this current system. We mentioned, we talked about this after the IMAX screening. There's four or five directors on the planet that get to make $200 million movies. All of them are white men. Mm -hmm. All of them. And I have to give Scorsese credit because three of us saw it at the same IMAX screening on the 19th. And what do we see? We see a preview for Napoleon. So... So many, how many white people get to make, how many uh, filmmakers get to make $200 million historic epics? All white guys. One of them's Ridley Scott. And for the most part, historically, they use it to make stories about other white men. So on one hand, I have to give credit to Scorsese from every report, including talking to the chief, Chief Standing Bear, from every Osage person that I've talked to. He did his absolute best to be as authentic and respectful and I would even say loving is possible to tell this story respectfully of the Osage people. Still not Osage. He's still not a woman. And I wouldn't think to speak on behalf of Native Americans. But um, there's, it's still a frustration to know that he can't get out of his own way a little bit. The story, to me, drags the most when it focuses the most on Ernest Burkhart. But you know it's coming because you're going to focus on your bankable executive producer, Oscar-winning superstar, at some point you're going to turn the camera away from Lily Gladstone and you're going to put it on him and you're going to put it on him and De Niro and their buddies all scheming. And to me, the movie loses a little bit. It falters a little bit narratively there because to me, the true heart of the movie is Molly Burkhart. So I th felt that way from... And, and I had to go into the second screening asking myself, do I feel that way because I'm frustrated 
because I know there's not a Native American filmmaker on the planet or an indigenous filmmaker on the planet or a woman filmmaker on the planet that they would give $200 million to unless they were making a Marvel movie. I mean, you can be mad about it, Scorsese, but the only women who get to make $200 million movies are get to be a Kevin Feige proxy and make a Marvel movie. Only Native American directors or indigenous directors, African American directors that get $200 million to make a movie don't get to make historical epics. That's just the way it is in the system. And isn't that proof that we've come a really, really long way, but at the same time, kind of not? So I had to go into the second screening thinking, am I frustrated because this is the way the filmmaking is? Or am I frustrated because this story really does falter at an hour and a half when we stop seeing what Molly Burkhart's doing? And I came to the conclusion the second time, no, it really does falter narratively there. But then it picks back up, you know, as soon as it shifts back to her. To me, it picks right back up. But there were things that I would have liked the movie to have done and things that I would like to have seen it addressed if it were truly made from Molly Burkhart's perspective um, that you can't do if you're, if you have to have Leonardo DiCaprio in a certain number of scenes and you have to have your fascination with that character, you know, because you can't help being a white man. I mean, I just... I don't blame him for it. I don't blame David Grant for it. I mean, David Grant, I think, has been... It's it's interesting to me. We've talked about A Pipe for February. Well, there's, you know, Dennis McAuliffe, who was a, a journalist who's Osage wrote about... You know, he wrote about The Reign of Terror in 1994. Nobody knows about those books until David Grant, a white man, writes a book about it. And I feel like David Grant's been very generous about both of those books and promoted them and written new forwards for them and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is... Nobody knows about it until a white guy writes about it. And nobody knows this story until a white guy makes a movie about it. And that's frustrating. Yeah. And that's, I know I'm probably spoiler alerting your, pro, your podcast, but it was part of my review because to me, it's part of the frustration with the film is knowing that as good of the film as it is. And I really, really love the film knowing that there was a way for it to be that much better. If we lived in a system that was a little bit more, equitable yeah i think that's a very very valid criticism we're going to dive into that more especially once we do get to the full spoiler section but i want to turn it over to you angela what did you think of killers of the flower moon i'm like everybody else very conflicted i've only seen it once and so i honestly had to take the weekend to process it there's a lot of emotions that happen with it a lot of observations just you know knowing everybody that was involved, I will say that if you're going to be an ally, this is how you be an ally. He really, I think Scorsese really set the bar for allyship. If you're going to be a white guy telling somebody's story, he did the research. And we've talked about that on our podcast about if you're going to do that, do the research. If you're going to critique our work, do the research know which tribe you're going to talk about because we're not all the same. Mm -hmm. You have to know the intricacies of all of that. And I thought this was an interesting blend of pipe for February and David Grant's book. Cause I feel like a lot of the details came from Grant, but a lot of the experience came from red corn because we've talked about this on Real Indigenous before, that Indigenous filmmakers have a tendency to make a connection with the space you're in. 
and they really make it part of the story that we're telling because we're so rooted to spaces and like the big drone shot and the car race and, you know, all these big things that really, even at the, at the end, when you could hear the, the thunderstorm spoiler, there's a thunderstorm in Oklahoma. Well, Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, as an Oklahoma, somebody who was born, born and raised here, I was like, Oh, I feel like I'm here. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm experiencing my own state through the ears, the nose, the eyes of, of somebody from a different state who came here and really got that sense of space and shared it with us. So I, I really appreciated that. But yeah, definitely more Molly. Needs more Molly. Needs more Molly. It has a lot of, and, and it does have a lot of Molly. I don't want to make it sound like he doesn't have a lot of Molly in there, but well, you come a I little mean, short, I think, of, of making her the, the true heart of the film. Since we're in the spoiler-free part, I'll just say, neither more Molly. Yeah. more Molly. <laughs> well, it takes it to you, LeBron. What did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? Um, I had a, I, I felt like I came to this film like a sponge, you know, because there was so much information I did not know about this. And so I think I was fascinated by this history. I was fascinated by... It was a very sobering experience, but also I did. I was very enraged by it because, you know, there's I mean, there's reference to the um, the Tulsa race riots in the story as well. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later in the podcast. So I won't go into grave detail about that. But my connection to the story kind of comes from the history of that, how little I knew of that growing up and the long term ramification. Again, similar story. You know, this idea that there was this wealth and prestige and 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 power and agency that these people had that was that people identified and they exploited and they destroyed and and then the long term ramifications of that and seeing still how there's this conversation about equity for black women or, you know, so um, I found a correlation between those histories that made me really lean into this, you know, just as a as a historical account of a history that's seldom told or known. And so um, I, I agree with everyone's sentiment about Molly's character. She's definitely the heart and soul of it, because as Bam, as you mentioned, anytime she is not on screen, I'm thinking about where is she? What is she doing? How is this particular incident affecting her specifically? Um, which I think is really a true testament to Lily Gladstone's performance because for her to have a presence, even when she's not there, you know, um, is, is, you know, a big testament to how much she can do with so little. Um, but yeah, I came to this again, um, with, with a lot of interest. And so, um, it satisfied that for me. I do think there's no one other than Scorsese that could have made the kind of ending that this movie has. And we'll talk about that later too, but specifically the way he, he, the epilogue for this film is very powerful and, and it could have been done so many other ways. Um, and, and as we've seen in less, and maybe in less, a lesser film, you know, where we would have just been seeing text across the screen with mm. where are they now? And what, you know, all that, like, you know, which is just very unimaginative, but he found a very creative way to make that 
that history like hits you, you know, uh, and kind of wash over you. So you are. I would argue it goes, uh, and we're going to get into the specifics, sure. but I would argue it actually engages with the audience, specifically the white audience, mm. probably more than others. Like, about hey, the complicity about, of about all About the complicity of, of what yeah. we're all doing. What we're all right? doing, yeah. And it does it in a very clever, mm. not finger-wavy way, but in a way that makes you, that does that does convict you in a certain way, you know? And so um, I think it is a very, I think it is going to be an important film that has a legacy and longevity mm-hmm. um, just because of what it's bringing to what what attention it's bringing to the story um and if i hope it inspires many many more 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 three-dimensional more you know um told from an indigenous perspective viewpoint i don't fault him as you guys have all all said we've all kind of accounted the fact that he has done his due diligence in terms of um being as as uh, authentic as he can about this um but with it again it's it's told from a non-native based on a book by a non-native you know so there's two degrees of separation from the that perspective you know um but i do think that it is important that as i'm saying here in 2023 this is the first that i've known the full scope of this story and i don't take that for granted you know and that is important and that is a value you know because it means millions of people will now know about this history and if he did it i would have loved it to have been you know a native a native american person um but i think that um all the same that 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 it exists and that people are curious and that people are interested and that people are now scouring these books and this history and all this is is very important and i think that that is significant is not insignificant well said. Well, there's not a lot left for me to say. You guys have all said it. And, and what I mean, I just want to echo that. I think agreeing with everything you guys are saying about this is Martin Scorsese. He's not indigenous. He's not an Oklahoman. He's a prestigious white director from New York. He even has admitted in a bunch of interviews about how he's air quotes urban. I'm urban. I don't. He was like just wild that you could still go to like the countryside and horses were roaming, right? Like he's just. He, on the surface, it seems like he's the opposite of the guy who you'd want to tell this story. Well, and David Grant's a New Yorker as well. I mean, right. so. Yeah. yeah it? Again, New Yorker. New, it's like two layers of New Yorker telling the story. Right. <laughs> that said, I think if we, if you can accept that this is a, the story as told as faithfully as possible by a white guy who has done his homework, an ally who has done his homework, I do think... Laurent, to your point, there's a lot of value in what we get, like a lot of value. A, I, I think just from if you're looking just purely at the production, the actual film, I mean, this is several goats, you know, greatest of all times, all collaborating together at the highest level. I mean, yeah, sure. Leo De Niro, Lily Gladstone showing those guys up, yeah. um, which is amazing. But you also have the art direction. The production design, yeah. Robbie Robertson's score the is costuming. incredible. The costuming, like everything about mm. this production, is well. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'll, I'll talk about it later. Okay. Maybe in right, spoilers. Right. Well, there's definitely you can see the budget on the screen, and you can see the work that's put into the craft, and I really admire it for that. And again, I think my take as a white guy is that this movie is really not unfortunate. Fortunately, unfortunately, is really not for the Osage audience. It is trying to amplify the story of the Osage to a wider audience, likely mostly white audience, but I would say globally to try to raise awareness, Lauren, as you already said. Yeah. 
all those things, uh, if you taking all those things and you putting it together, my take is third time. It really took, took the third time for me to really like feel pretty confident. I think this thing's a masterpiece because it has utility because it's telling a, a story that had not been told that is raising awareness because the craft is so great. Now difference is perfect masterpiece, not the same thing, yeah. but I think it's going to have s- cultural significance in the long run. I think it's also the intersection of a bunch of ideas and themes that Scorsese has been working on for his entire career. Sin, white privilege, toxic masculinity, uh, faith, um, corrupt systems, all of it coming together in one story in Oklahoma. So I'm willing to go out on a limb and say it's a masterpiece. I might, I might get crap for that later. Uh, so, Sunrise, you're you're shaking your head, and when we were talking about costumes, so maybe I'll turn it to you. Oh, not costumes. No, it's my my beef is with the score. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah okay. this may be taboo, it may be disrespectful. Um, you know, uh, but no, no, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I and I don't know how much this has to do with the fact that Robertson passed before the film was finished, and I don't know how complete he felt it was. But it just feels that it's it's like a, a few drafts away from a great score. It, when you compare his other scores with Scorsese, the, so many of the other scores stand so much taller. Um, and part of it, I think, is the mix. I think it's actually poorly mixed with the score. Like the score is not as prominent until like maybe mid-film. It is pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think there are maybe are reasons for that, but um, I don't walk away from this film with a memory of the score in terms of any themes, uh, the way that I do from The Departed, or the way that I do even from Silence, which uses you know um, crickets and um, or from The Irishman. Irishman, really incredible score, um, but this one it just felt like it was it it just needed more um, time. I think both like in the crafting of the of the compositions, uh, the way that they relate to the material, um, perhaps the way that they integrate elements of the Osage, um, but also just the mix. But like all those things, perhaps because this is such a massive film with a very specific deadline, this is like the thing that happens. It's also the thing that happens last. Yeah. You know, all these elements. Uh-huh. And then on top of that, I you know, who knows what his state was uh, on, on the verge of, yeah. you know, his passing. So I feel like the um, the I feel like the the score is um, perhaps the least um, refined moments. Okay, in, so in the... I was listening to it on the way here. Yeah, uh huh, yeah. And it it reminded me of Dead Man. Mm-hmm. It, oh sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. And just him, I noodling, think that noodling around with it. Yeah, I think that's some of that's intentional. Well, yeah, yeah. So I appreciated it. I'm. It yeah. is very northern sounding. It's definitely northern sounding. He's he's definitely not. Yeah. It's there's sort of a disconnect when it comes yeah. to the tribal he's not Im- specificity. In the Osage yeah. right. Tonal yeah. ranges yeah. at all, yeah. but it's, I, it's interesting. I actually left with a stronger perception of the sound design than the score, and just the use of ambient sound from Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I think that I I forget. Like there's scenes where they're inside, like some of those scenes with early scenes with DiCaprio and De Niro, where he's kind of giving him the rundown of how things work around here and they're inside and you can hear the wind. And I think that maybe that's one of the advantages to having somebody who's an outsider come in and look at this because there were a lot of outsiders who were coming in to Osage country for the first time. And I think that if you're from here, you forget about the wind. Like I don't think about the wind blowing like it blows every day because it blows every day like this. 
I mean, so I think that there were some ambient, there were a lot of ambient sounds. Obviously, in the end credits, there's a lot of that that's used. But I, I caught more of like a sense of that a lot of times than I did the score is how they use the, the, the ambient noise of being out in the country in Oklahoma. Um, I actually left with a stronger impression of that until, again, about the midpoint, the score seems to really like wake up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to say also that I, the things that you're talking about could have also been considered score. Uh, I haven't read anything about this yet, but like when it comes to silence, um, yeah. the score was considered to be also like the the yeah, wind, the leaves, yeah. mm. the bugs that we're hearing. So that also could have been considered it's score. A very indigenous. It, to- thing. it totally is. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's a more subtle. I, I will say the third time, I, I the only one that really there's two kind of motifs that stick with me. Specifically, the opening, which is the and, mm-hmm. and I was listening to Scorsese in an interview. He was talking about. He's like, "Yeah, I wanted a big that down now, you know, like with the guitar and everything." But after that, it it goes real quiet, just like really subtle. Every once in a while, you hear the guitar just quietly, but it's always there. Which is most of the time, it's it's always, it's always kind of there. Yeah, it's always, there. but it's not very prominent. That's it's a fair point. Prominent. Yeah, yeah. It's not, and I feel like there's other things that are kind kind of. Frequency wise, conflicting with it. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think that, yeah. yeah. It, to me, that made it seem like it was contemporary, which it is. I mean, my grandmother was alive during all of this. So to me, it made it feel more contemporary, not a period piece necessarily, but something that just happened. Yeah. I don't think this is actually a period piece. No. I, I, I agree. I don't yeah. think it is at all. I think it has period detailing, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's very contemporary, I think, in the telling of it which i think is not a bad thing somebody who is a newspaper writer who has looked back at the press coverage from that time and also of the tulsa race massacre it's a good thing that it's contemporary right not to call out my entire industry although some some people in the industry i mean we wrote around the tulsa race massacre we had a a story about how the press coverage of that was bad and wrong i mean and so there's we could write one about that too for as far as the Osage because it was very, it was very, it was a, I think this comes through more in Grand's book because of the way it's focused. Um, the, there was a, a ton of press coverage about this. There was a ton of press co- uh, coverage about the Osage in general that fueled all of that envy that we sort of see that comes in to it because it was all about how these, you know, insert pejorative of native american here Mm -hmm. had all this money Mm -hmm. and we're just running around squandering it whenever the truth of the matter was they weren't squandering it any more than anybody else was during the roaring 20s that had wealth yeah they were not squandering it any more than the marlins and the phillips and the gettys the oil money anybody with money but (laughs) that all that coverage so i think from from that perspective of it being contemporary, that is a good thing because we certainly don't need for it to not be in terms of how it was told. Because if you look back at how it was told at the time, not yeah. very journalistically ethical. Right. Well, I want to, we have a lot to hit on. So I want to, I do want to dig into a little bit. Um, Angel, I'll start with you on this. I mean, how well do you think the Osage and indigenous people were represented? It sounds like uh, you and Senators both had some sort of a reaction watching it. Like, how well did you think they repped on the big screen? It, I liked how light everything was when they were showing them and their ways of life and the things that they were doing. And it was bright and it was sunny. And of course, the clothes were 100% accurate and as they can be on film. And I think that 
like I said, he went above and beyond with his allyship in working with them. That being said, you know, many of the consultants were interviewed after after the debut and they agreed it is not a film for the Osage. He kind of speeds through this beautiful life that they have, which it kind of hits them in the high points. And then we spend a, a lot of time otherwise. We're still in spoiler free, right? Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Still spoiler free. So, so, okay. so you're referencing like at the beginning how we get like this montage at the beginning of like, look how great they've got it. Well, it, 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 I mean, the the colors were the you know the lighting on set was bright and sunny and everybody was smiling and moving happily about and you know everything was great on the surface, and so I think that for the time. It was very accurate from what I know. Of course, I'm not Osage, so, but, you know, it seemed, seemed like he talked to enough people who would know that it would be on point. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Sunrise, any, uh, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I reiterate some of those things. I agree with a lot of those things. Um, my emotional reaction was to how he was able to capture in natives like specifically to the United States um just giving them uh, an opportunity to be on screen and how much time um was given to them both like in terms of like the prep like all the money and the time spent to dress them and to do the hair and makeup and then how much time we spend shooting and how much time we spend with them in the film it's not enough but i would say that anybody that um anybody besides him i feel like probably would not um do the service of spending so much time with these individuals and yeah and yeah and there's moments where we get characters that are you know not even tertiary characters and we spend a lot more time with them than we would in another filmmaker's films so for somebody who's non-indigenous to to give that amount of time in this tremendously large budgeted production when he could be spending more time in leo and that's not to say that he spends enough time with these people over leo um, but the fact that he did is really incredible And in that in addition to how he's capturing these individuals is very communal. It's not an individual. Uh, there are very few close-ups of, uh, the indigenous people. One of my favorite scenes is when all the sisters are laying, um, down on the blanket and they're talking with each other and sort of like yeah. comparing the men to animals yeah. and yeah. talking about their intimacy and uh, teasing each other. Um, it, it, it's like shots that are um, in multiplicity. And I feel like that is his attention to things that I think are very indigenous. Um, we, we talk all the time about how like indigenous narratives are about community and that's reinforced, you know, by contemporary um, filmmakers. Sterling is an example where the whole Reservation Dog series is about a community. It's not about an individual. Um, and he's able to capture that. And I felt like that was something that was really uh, impressive to me, especially that like we start that way. We start with the community in the like um, the the immediate scene where we're introduced to the nation. And then as it moves forward, it continues to continues to apply that to some degree. Um, so I thought that was really incredible. Um, 
related to what I think is the purpose of the film, which I'm going to talk about more in spoilers, but there's the way that he affords the nation time, um, not just in like scenes of like daily life, but also like related to politics and decision making and related to the narrative progression um, and the larger maybe message. I feel like he also did some amazing work. We, we hear and spend time with these individuals in a way that I feel like I don't see in other historical representations, quote, quote, historical. Yeah, he really moves away from the pan-Indian approach. Yeah, totally. Which is what we fight against all the time. Just to clarify, when we say pan-Indian, for listeners who might not be familiar, what are you referring to? When you're watching the old Westerns, TV shows, movies, they, they're just this the savages, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Just the Indians. There's not a yeah. specific... Yeah, they conflate tribal details like mm-hmm. teepees, the wardrobe. Thing, right? Yeah, it's a monolith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a pan Indian approach, which reservation dogs is in this are a great example of people asking me, "Oh, is this really true?" And me being able to say, "You know what? That's not my nation." But I'm glad you asked that so that I can explain how we're different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was one I was watching, I think it was on Jimmy Kimmel. Gosh, I've watched so many freaking interviews with Scorsese. Um, <laughs> but he was saying there was a scene. I want to say it was the scene where they're uh, this in a communal setting. They're discussing, hey, these murders are happening, and they're going to send this guy to Washington to you know, bingo. Yeah. Uh, or, is it, or as I like to call it, it's the scene where uh, Robert De Niro is the hot dog costume meme, literally in the scene. Uh, <laughs> we got to find the guy who did this. I'll pay you $1,000. I guess Scorsese at one point let them just start riffing. Yeah. Like yeah. they just started going and it wasn't scripted. And he's like, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I could, tell you could exactly totally tell when that you, you know when that happens. Yeah. And, and immediately in the movie, this is why I'm like, this is not a historical epic. <laughs> this is, you know, you go to the tribal meetings. In fact, like there's a documentary with like the, the same individuals and the same things happening. And I'm just like, this is, they, they just let them go. Yeah. And good for you. And, and good, you know, like he's, he, there's a moment, maybe I'll get into spoilers, but there's a moment earlier where we set up the scenario of like duration and time and listening. And I think it's related to that. And I think he's, he's learning. Scorsese, I felt like it was learning the way in which to participate in this community, mm-hmm. like how you engage in communication. And he applied it in the film in, the, in terms of the cutting, um, in terms of the duration, uh, in, in, in this process of like just letting them go. Yeah, especially when it comes to elders. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last thing that's related to this sort of like uh, a composition that accommodates multiple people. I'm starting to see this as part of indigenous filmmaking, maybe specifically to America. But uh, the, when you have a wide frame and you have a lot of people in the shot and the fact that we've got real people in this shot um, and he's he's casting real people and people from Oklahoma. Um, there's this amazing thing that happens both in this film and a lot of indigenous media, particularly like Reservation Dogs. Um the audience is able to go, I know that person. Like literally it's sometimes. Very relatable. Very, very relatable. It's like, I know that person. That's exactly this person in my family or my cousin or my friend. Um, sometimes it's literal. It's like, it, it, you know, in the screening, the first one, it, it, Maya and I were like pointing out people that we literally knew. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's a celebration of the fact that people are alive and we're yeah. seeing the reality of those people on the screen. It is amazing mm-hmm. that in that in that particular scene. Well, I want to turn things over to you, Bam, for a second. You uh, have been covering 
Oklahoma Entertainment Arts for a very long time. Sure. What, how did you think Oklahoma was represented in this specific film? Are you talking about Oklahoma or the Osage? Oklahoma. Um, before I say that, I do want to say something about how the Osage were. One of the things that I appreciated the most about the film and all of the um, the, the uh, effort that was put into it, and this is speaking as a non-native but still as somebody who works a lot with natives, is that how much of the language was featured in in the film how much of the osage language was in there because i don't know if you remember i actually was just googling the date um so when west studi was on the oscars in 2018 and he spoke cherokee the cherokees were like that's the first time that our language has been on national television ever and that was 2018 so to have a major motion hollywood motion picture come out that has osage throughout and actually there's probably more osage than english spoken maybe in the first hour i mean it's probably pretty close to vision that to me, I thought was amazing at, to see that there's just in five years, you've gone from a sentence being spoken in Cherokee on the Oscars being the most anybody's ever heard of a native language to a, a, a film that has that's three and a half hours long that a big chunk of it is in Osage. And a lot of it is without subtitles. And a lot mm-hmm. of times Scorsese in some of the interviews, he said, he said, we didn't need them. You can tell what people are saying. Yeah, yeah or totally. you can at least get the gist of what they're, I mean, if, if Lily and Leo are arguing, they're arguing. You can tell. You don't need to know the exact detail of what they're whispering in Osage. You know that they're arguing over, you know, whatever. And so I I thought, to me, that was something that was so vital to it. And it just, after working with so many Native people and hearing so often the, the big complaint about being treated as a monolith, like every tribe is the same, every Native person is the same, it was great to see, even if I found limitations to it, that people were treated as individuals like there is a there is a woman in in molly's family who is an alcoholic who is but not every ending's a drunk indian that's nice because and what we see in old hollywood movies every indian's a drunk indian every indian's comic relief you know kind of thing and so it was nice to sort of see that individualism in characters even like smaller characters like henry roan where you sort of get a you know he's not a main character, but he's a supporting character, but you get kind of a well-rounded sense of who he is a little bit. And so to me, I did appreciate that as far as how Oklahoma, I mean, is, is depicted. Um, well, I mean, you know, we look great, you know, the landscape, $200 million looks great. The landscape looks awesome. Um, I mean, what can you say? I mean, I feel like, um, the people that we had that worked on it, which obviously were not like the above the line people and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, but the ones that we had that worked on it, I think, did great work. I don't think that there's any question about how good of a job the cast and crew did. I don't think there's any question as to how well the Osage artisans and costumers and language consultants and all those people. I don't think there's any question that they did great work. Um, it's a horrible piece of Oklahoma history. I mean, I don't I don't know what to say except for that. Um, one thing that you can take from it is that I did speak to Yancey Redcorn, who plays the chief, um, in the film before, just a couple days before the actor strike, I, I spoke to him and he had gone to the can premiere and he commented that the most memorable thing about the can premiere was the number of people who were actors and directors from other countries who approached him after the, the next day to say, I know that that was about your people. But that was about me and my family's history in Africa or Indonesia or Thailand. Mm-hmm. And so I guess 
Oklahoma can take solace in the fact that we're hardly the only ones who have this type of history. Maybe it's just more concentrated because we were Indian territory. But, I mean, it's a horrible chapter of Oklahoma history. And and that it runs parallel with the Tulsa Race Massacre um, is bad. But the Tulsa Race Massacre is hardly, I mean, that whole, that whole summer was the red summer where there were race massacres that happened like that all over the country. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, there's so many more we don't we, we have that even like that's yeah. gotten attention, but there's more. There's more that, that haven't happened. gotten attention. Right. And so, I mean, I think that it's one of those things that I mean, it looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. The people who worked on it who are from Oklahoma did fantastic work. I think we certainly showed that, you know, you can make a 200 million dollar movie in Oklahoma. Um, but it's sad that you have history like that in Oklahoma. But that history, I think, exists Everywhere. And I mean, I think that if there's one thing that can really be have utility, like you say, um, is that there's a relatability to it that I mean, I think we've seen it done really well globally. I mean, I think some people are surprised at how well the box office has done globally so far. I think people relate to the story of an indigenous people being exploited by whites who come in from the outside. That is not a story unique to Oklahoma. It's just this story is. Excuse me, maybe. Sorry about that. Maybe unique in its scope, I think. Yeah. And maybe they learned a lesson from Prey that was released on streaming only. Yeah. yeah. Uh, until I bought the 4K. <laughs> just a couple yeah, weeks ago. finally did finally, come out. Came finally. out on. But yeah, it didn't get, didn't get but theatrical. It didn't get no, theatrical. No, 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 it did not release. get theatrical. It Sad, tragically. Yeah. That, that movie should have been on the big it screen. It should have been on the big uh, screen. So, yeah. Maybe they took a little tiny clue from And I prefer the. Is it Comanche? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, pre- oh yeah. yeah. I prefer oh, yeah. that version. Like I, I watch both yes. just to just to get oh, a yeah. comparison, but it, it far exceeds hearing it in the native. I mean, and like you said, we don't know everything that's happening, but but like but you, you can do. interpret a lot of information from people's emotions. Their like language is is body language is is also communicating a lot of things. You know. But you I know, think like, you're seeing a sea change to to not only just native. Um, and indigenous creators getting to tell their own stories, which I think is extremely important. Although I still think that we're seeing it largely in a more independent scale than we're seeing it on a big budget scale for sure. But I also think too, that you're seeing um, a change in attitude. Um, whenever I talked to people who from Oklahoma, from the Pawnee nation who were consultants on the Amazon series, the English that yeah. came out late last year, which is excellent. And that everybody of age should watch. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about how there was a different, it felt different this time. It wasn't just, we have this that we're doing and we want you to rubber stamp it. It's we want to use Pawnee in these scenes. And how would you say this in Pawnee and like really tell, tell us how to do it and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, they were working long distance cause it was being filmed in Spain during the pandemic, but you know, it was, it was, they said that there was much more engagement, much less just hit OK and tell us that we can do this because this is what we're doing. And we want to be able to put that we had Pawnee consultants. It was more like this is how we want to tell this story. And it's like if you say, well, no, that wouldn't have happened this way. They say, oh, OK. And then they come back a few days later with new pages. You know, so I, I'm hoping that this is setting that new standard for yeah. if you're going to make if you're going to tell an indigenous story as a non-indigenous person, this is the level of what you're expected to deliver. And audiences will buy it. I, I just want to, I know it's not uh, indigenous story, but I do want to call out just thinking about different languages or subtitles like parasite did win best picture in 2020. So I think audiences in general, if you trust them, they'll get it, you know? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Sunrise, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, just comparing these two films, Killers and Prey, 
there is a very specific distinction that I think is really important to consider, and that um, killers. It's great that Scorsese went through the effort that he did, and we're all recognizing the effort and the outcome. Uh, but Prey is very distinct because we have somebody that's above the line, that's indigenous, that's having a very clear influence, right? So like somebody that's a, a producer helping make decisions and helping relate um, the audience and the subject matter and the people that are working that are indigenous um, on the influence of the outcome, narrative, structure, the, the way it's distributed, the language, um, all of those things came from somebody who was above the line. Killers, well, I feel like only got so far, and I feel like it's reached a certain ceiling that Prey sort of outpaced it to some degree. And that's probably the the bar, maybe, when it comes to in, in integrating an individual that's of a community. Yeah. Was there a member of an Osage who could have been an actor, an, an executive, executive producer. producer? Right. right. Instead yeah. of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, Leo probably still would be an executive producer. There's no way that yeah. movie well, would listen, be made. We all it, know but... there's actually no limit to the number of executive yeah, producers. Right, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. There's right. a limit that can number of who can accept an Oscar, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well, I... I so much more to talk about with Oklahoma, but unfortunately, <laughs> to make sure we have time to get to the spoilers, uh, I do have to. I, I do want to get, talk about two uh, elements that I know are just general, generally being discussed about this film out there that are different than the content, which is the runtime. Brandy, bam! I saw that you published the article about when to take a pee break, uh, <laughs> the, or sorry, oh, excuse me, restroom break during Killers of Flower Moon. I did not C- use the word pee. You did. Oh, sorry, I know, I know. My, my potty mouth got in the way. Um, well, well, there also is a run pee website, and I would never want to like infringe on somebody else's IP. I have, I have, uh, <laughs> I, I have IP. IP. I have respect for other people's, um, you know, even though I don't think you can trademark the idea of running and peeing, but I mean, still, <laughs> I'd like to, to steer clear of stepping on other people's territory, I guess. So. I just want to, I'm going to turn this one back to you first, only because, a couple of reasons. Number one, you wrote that article. Number two, you are among one of the harshest critics I know of long run times. And I have to know, did the three and a half hour movie work for you? It did. Um, I I did say that, I, I will say it worked to a certain extent. Um, there is, I, I think I've, I, I mentioned this in the story, which by the way, that, that story was hilarious because it was a, it was a, it was a, an online editor kind of thing that would be like, Hey, if you could do this, people will be looking for this information and we will get a million hits off of it. And I'm like, <laughs> do I really want to art from an artistic perspective, like encourage people to leave the film? I mean, that's just like not normally what I would do. But the funniest thing about it was, is that there were a whole bunch of like filmmakers who were like, thank you for that. I and saw, I was I saw there, the comments. Like, some, yeah. some of the people who commented on it were filmmakers who were like, I appreciate this information. I'm like, really? <laughs> filmmakers appreciate me telling when to leave a film to go to the bathroom. I was like, because I guess if you got to go, you got to go. I mean, it's three and a half hours. Um, I just re- for the most part, yes, the runtime worked for me. Uh, I tend to maybe I was a little overly empathetic this time, having to have sat down and written more than once now about the Osage rate of terror and had to like explain what head rights are and all those kind of things. 
I mean, I feel a little bit better about some of those 2,500-inch stories that I turned in that an editor was like, really, 2,500 words? This is ridiculous. It's like, well, just you try to explain it. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. felt a little bit better about some of those stories whenever I was like, well, it took Martin Scorsese three and a half hours to tell it, and he only told part of it. So <laughs> so there. So, I mean, maybe I felt a little bit of empathy toward Martin that I maybe don't feel about everybody else that turns in a three and a half hour movie that I'm like, oh, my gosh, could you not cut like one chase scene or some sort of explosion <laughs> to at least make it like easier on my back here come on um but yeah i tend to be very harsh critic about that but i will say that there is again to a certain extent it works for me because i will never stop saying that there's that whole bit between an hour and a half and about five minutes till the two hour mark where it's like do we really need to see another henchman talking to martin scorsese about how evil they're being can we just Get back to whatever Molly's doing. That was the part where I was like, yeah, go to the bathroom there. You can. It's a good time. <laughs> so, so yeah, not every scene I think was perfect. There were some scenes that I think could have been trimmed. And um, I don't necessarily think we need more henchmen um, to get major screen time, even if they're played by Peter Yorn. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, for the most part, I, I was digging the three and a half hour runtime. Um, and he surprised me because I thought with the Irishman, I thought, oh, God. I really have to, I love you, Scorsese, but do I really have to sit here for three and a half hours? And then I watched it and I was like, yes, that, that was worth my three and a half hours. And I, that was my conclusion with the review too, that it was worth your seven year wait. And it was worth your three and a half hours to sit through Killers of the Flower Moon. It was a worthwhile experience. I can't believe that she just said that. (laughs) Now I've gone to see how many hours does that add up? Seven hours of Martin Scorsese. I watched 10. I'm, I'm at 10 and a half. Uh, <laughs> oh Laron Chapman, how about you? Did the runtime work for you? You know, it's interesting. I have the same the same argument. I think I, I think I saw Caleb's eyes roll several times when I before ahead of this process. Uh, when I, I mentioned also that I was dreading the, the the length of this movie, I was just like, do we need that much time for any? I mean, any movie really? I mean, and I and to be fair, I think if it warrants it, yes. Um, and for me, to my surprise, also, I mean, it's not. I I I. I'm kind of coming down on the the sentiment that I've heard a lot that it just flies by. I don't think that. But I do think that it's not that there's no time. It, it took no time. It's just that I felt like the time that I I, I viewed the film, um, it wasn't wasted. You know what I mean? Like, or it was utilized, you know, as, it, you know, um, well. You know, so um, from a narrative standpoint, you know, so I think that the scope and, and magnitude of this history and story that's kind of, specific to this region you know it just feels so like there's still so much to learn about it even with what we've seen you know so um i think it did warrant it and i think as a film like it i basically i think people think three and a half hours and they think boring it's going to be boring and it's not boring i'll give you that you know what i mean like it doesn't it doesn't suffer for me at least for with for pacing issues their perspectives i would have liked to have seen more of but as a film i think it flows well yes i think it's i think it's um it's it's economical in the choices that it makes along the way. So, well, and nobody's better than Scorsese at like taking these sort of like long stretches of things, either they're peaceful or they sort of lull you because they've gone on for a minute, and then there's these like flashes of like violence or there's these yeah. things like yeah. that that are all of a sudden it's like holy crap, where'd that come from? Yeah, so. you're comfortable and you're settled, and then all of a sudden you're yeah, you're gripping. It's, getting some, it's gripping, times. you know. So yeah, right. Uh, Angela, did the runtime work for you? I thought it was fine. I do warn people that ask me 
that are familiar with the story that like the first half is exposition for us just because we're more familiar with the story. Mm. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make a trip to the bathroom or to go get your concessions, we're, you know, we're a lot more familiar with this part than we are this part. So, but I think, I think the runtime was fine. I didn't notice it being overly long. Yeah. Sunrise. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think that the runtime is a very specific purpose when it relates to what I think is the message of the film. I think there's several messages related to the length, but I feel like the length is commenting about um, the perspective of the Osage, number one, um, what it means to have to have the patience um, an indigenous person is supposed to have when someone is giving them information. Mm-hmm. And this usually comes in the context of like an elder. And I, Angel's laughing because <laughs> sorry because it's so true. It be, yeah, elders. <laughs> That's totally my dad. <laughs> yeah, elders take a lot of time, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, it, a lot of that is, I think has to do with indigenous processing. If it takes a lot of time for information to come out, you're considering the words a little bit more. Yeah, you're thinking about how it relates. Yeah, so um, I feel like that is part of what happens and i think it he explicates that experience for the audience whether people get it or not i think is you know up for debate whether it's effective is up for debate but i think that's a a, a reason for the way that shots linger and the film is longer um but also i think it also has a the runtime relates a little bit to uh, what i think he's sort of um alluding to about these two different cultures i've alluded to one the other is really really related to spoilers for me but i feel like it's making a comment mm-hmm. about uh, america i think yeah yeah so i think there's a, a symbolic purpose um uh, the same thing with like the irishman i think really um there's a there's amount of duration that relates to like the the character i think um, i my my thought uh, and i thank you for sharing that um i, I i'm a big fan of using form to communicate a message, which is almost like a lost art these days. Um, Especially when you try to explain to people that no, no, there's an intentionality behind how it's being delivered to you uh, on the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, It brings me to the thing. I loved it because it allowed us to really live and breathe in these moments with all the characters. It's like, you could have, if you just wanted to focus on the plot and even the major character beats, yeah, you could have cut out a whole hour easy. But you wouldn't have that investment in those characters. You wouldn't yeah. feel like you're living in that part of Oklahoma in the 1920s in the way you did. And Lily Gladstone would have got even less screen time. Exactly. <laughs> Which, all the way, by the way. Not in my universe. <laughs> but, by the way, um, again, incredible performance. She doesn't have to say very much. The yeah. long silences following her deliveries sometimes are some of the best moments in the whole movie. And, again, if you're just focused on the way we're, we're I think – mainstream audiences are used to like edit action move pace go fast uh the pace uh, here is different it's more meticulous it's more intentional and i think everything that's here serves a purpose three third time i can't believe i i, I really thought it was going to get worse every time i watched it but the third time it really clicked i was like no i am on this ride and now that i know it's coming i'm able to like really soak it in mm-hmm. and not wondering oh what's going to happen next i'm like okay i'm, I'm really taking in this scene and how it fits into this larger story and in that way and i'm catching details it took me to the third time 
I can't believe I didn't notice this on the first time. There's a character who's a side character, but Molly has to go visit him to get money. Third time. Took me the third time to figure out there's a giant KKK uh, like poster right behind him. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and that's yeah. like a small, minute mm-hmm. detail, but it's important. Yeah, and I and it took me, that, that's how many t- views it took me to catch those details. And because the scenes last long, you can really do that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'll say it to say, I, I'm, I'm really glad. This is an epic, not necessarily in the terms of we think of epic in the blockbuster. There's giant set pieces and whatnot, yeah. but it's epic in the, the, the sprawling story it's telling how big in scope it is um it's also able to be very very intimate yeah. i think and i think that to the point about the exposition um especially in the beginning i really appreciate it as somebody who's had to write about the history before just that we were dealing with kind of a master cinematic craftsman in that and that it wasn't a big bunch of blocks on the screen of like, this is what happened where, you know, all this kind of stuff or that it wasn't at the end. This is what happened after everything was, I mean, that it was folded into the narrative and folded into the storytelling as masterfully it was. I really appreciated because I was like, please don't start out with some dry thing about this is a head, right? This is what a head, right? Is because it's like having written those kinds of stories before you have to think, Oh my gosh, I just put everybody to sleep at paragraph three. So (laughs) nobody even got to the reign of terror part. Um, I appreciated how masterfully the exposition was does, but it is, it is exposition heavy, but um, But again, only for those that are familiar with it. I mean, it's necessary for, those that are not. Yeah, exactly. I think even then it's setting the, I'm not, not going to disagree with the exposition, but it really sets the tone. Another thing that stuck out to me on the third viewing was, uh, and actually my wife was the one who said something to me about this. And I was like, I didn't think about it. Um, that first scene where they're, you kind of like entering the, the city and you just see all how, how high living the Osage people are, um, how loud and rambunctious it is. And something she pointed out to me and I was like, that is really profound. And it took third time. And you don't get these details when you're flashing. It's really loud because the white people are making tons of noise. And in fact, uh, in fact, um, Molly is trying to like, she's like, this is too much. She's trying to quiet. And it's like just an interesting inverse from the stereotype that we've been fed, uh, especially white audience has been fed uh, in terms of like Westerns. What is air the quote, line? Air quote, just, savages. Just something to the effect of like, do you have a card in this race? Right. You know, something right. like that. Yeah. Then let's get let's going. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Yeah. Right. So anyway, just, yeah, master craftsman, being able to see it work. Um, well, we are running short on time, but let's just really quick, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, IMAX, recommend IMAX, bam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Now, I did have um, Lee McCormick, who is, I think you may know her. She's, a, she's a, actually a native um, actor and designer from here in Oklahoma. She's a be very careful about where you pick to sit in the IMAX because there is so much going on. She sat very close and very much in the front and didn't feel like she could see as much. Oh, so yeah. so choose your seats carefully because you are dealing with something that's a very wide scope of things. J22 or J21. Yep. That's right. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think we sat in H. Uh, we sat in H. Yeah. <laughs> we sat in the row, the the one there's a bit in that. And then in the Quail Springs, it's like dead in the center, but it's closer to the back. Yeah, by and it was corner. pretty perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunrise sounds. Like I, you... I did not see the IMAX. Ah. I, I'm a big advocate of IMAX, but uh, where I was watching and I had no access to IMAX. So, ah, yep, bummer. Angela, same, no access. So, because I jumped on a plane the next day. Ah, that's oh, that's right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she gets a pass. I've seen it once, and it was an IMAX, and um, I have nothing to compare it to, but I can say that watching it in in IMAX, I did feel like I got a lot of information. Um, maybe too much information to process even scene to scene because of everything that's happening 
in in the background. You could see things if you you could wander and look over here and not pay attention to what's on the screen, and there's still a lot of information being conveyed, which goes to how much detail went into uh, creating this world. You know, so um, I think it's probably the optimal way to watch it. Yeah, so I saw it at a press screening in a standard definition theater, and press screens are tough because I swear a lot of the time they do not have the audio mix correct that for they haven't screened it for other audiences at that point. Um, so I definitely preferred the IMAX, largely because I mean yes, the bigger screen is always better, um, but largely for the sound mix was light years better than the first uh, standard uh, viewing that I watched. The third time I also watched it standard, but it was in the Cinemark XD, which is not IMAX, but it's their kind of the closest they get to IMAX, I guess. Uh, and it was very good. So highly recommend the premium price uh, for the tickets on this one. All right, uh, Laurent, uh, we're going to have to save this for a follow-up on in terms of the Oscar uh, discussion because there's so much to talk about there. And I want to talk uh, all the, the meaty stuff and spoilers here. What letter grade would you give Killers of the Flower Moon? So, Laurent, I'll start with you. Um, I'd like to see it again. Um I think I'm sitting at an A minus right now. I think um, it's it's not a five star film for me, but it's a very worthy four and a half star film for me. So, um, and I think that that could change um, upon different viewings. But um, but it's definitely a very sobering and impactful film, and I've haven't stopped thinking about it since I've watched it. So I know that it's um, that there's some cultural significance there. Yeah, awesome. Well said, Angela. After one viewing, I would say B. Nice. Fair. Sunrise? I have two letter grades. Uh, if this were an indigenous film, which is not, I'd give it a D plus. But because he's an American <laughs> filmmaker, um, and specifically an American genre filmmaker, um, I give it a B plus. And it's, it, yeah, it just loses some points because it's not including the just perspective as much, which is included in the American experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think it's good criticism. Bam? For the film itself, again, Similarly, taking it out of the um, the paradigm that that it had to be made by the people it had to be made because of the world we live in, just evaluating the film itself, I give it an A minus. I'm gonna go A plus specifically because the third time, the movie we got from the perspective we got it from for the audience it was intended for, I really think it's a home run. Now. Again, as we're going to talk about even more in depth and spoilers, there's a whole host of man. But was he the guy to make this? Should he have made this movie? What's missing because he's the guy who made the movie? You know, there's all these other things that we need to talk about in terms of like, is yes, it's a great, I argue, a masterpiece. But is it the masterpiece that this story like like was this the version of the story that needed to be told, essentially? Um, so what we got, I think, is great. Maybe we needed something different. Just saying. Uh, before we go into spoiler section, I do like to do a quick round of recommendations for people who like Killers of the Flower Moon or have, uh, or hey, hey, you like it. What, what's something else you should watch? Uh, so Sunrise, I'll start with you on this one. Well, uh, one thing I didn't mention about Scorsese is that he's just a cinephile, and that's something that really sort of spawned my interest in cinema. Um, and if you're interested in things that he is interested in, I would suggest very uh, important text uh that's a very academic way to think about it, but uh, I would say Marcel Carnet's film, The Children of Paradise, really influential on Scorsese, particularly when it comes to Gangs of New York and this particular film. In fact, he sort of like recreates sequences from this particular movie. Um, but he's very influenced by so much cinema that I, I can't um, also discount uh, Visconti and the film called The Leopard or 
Robert Bresson's film The Trial of Joan of Arc or Hitchcock's film The Wrong Man. If you're interested in Scorsese and his filmmaking, all those films uh, are influencing a lot of his work in his later films, but this one in specific, um, that's just if you're interested in cinema and Scorsese. If you're interested in the film and the narrative, I would suggest you look at a film called The Osage Murders by David Bishop. It's a documentary. Um, and it um, addresses the same narrative, more ingrained from the perspective of the Osage. In fact, we see the same people in the film uh, as we do on the screen. Um, so uh, that's what I suggest. All right. Brandy? Um, I really recommend, um, actually, after having this, I have not seen it yet. So after sitting on this podcast, I'm definitely going to try and see Silence. I think it's just one that I missed when it came out. And so um, probably because it was three hours or something like that. And I decided it was only two and a half. I didn't have enough time for it. Um, I definitely think that people should see the Irishman. Cause I think that it, um, it's, it's a very different, it's a very interesting film to watch as almost like a bookend to this one. I think it's very interesting to see that sort of storytelling style that he crafted out of that story applied to this. Um, I definitely think that people, if you love Lily Gladstone, which you should, um, when you see this film, A Certain Woman is great. I think that um, Seeking Out Fancy Dance, whenever it, hopefully, I'm really, really hopeful, and I know she, Lily is, and I know that Erica Tremblay was, that this will help Fancy Dance land mm-hmm. distribution and um, be able to be more widely seen than it just has been on the festival circuit. Because I think that you really see what she can do um, whenever there's an in, a, a female indigenous storyteller who's getting to tell the story. Yep. Um, and I, I also just think that um, I'm never going to stop recommending um, the English to people because I think it's a very interesting story. It's a different time period, but I think it's a very interesting storytelling telling perspective from a different time period of this sort of cla- these clashes of cultures, I think, wh- where the perspective is. Um, this is on Prime with um, uh, Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt, yes. Emily Blunt. Yes, it's on my yeah. queue. I'm very yeah. curious to watch it. And, yeah. and Chesky Spencer, Spencer, who is excellent. Amazing in it. In it. Okay. Um, and so I definitely rem- – and then I'm always going to recommend Reservation Dogs because if you want to see what happens whenever you actually and, – and and basically any of Sterling Harjo's films, if you want to actually see what happens whenever you uh, – I pick Reservation Dogs because there's more of a budget there. But if you ever want to see what happens whenever you actually give a Native American uh, filmmaker free reign to actually tell a story from his community, it, it's it's just – it's wonderment. And so I just feel like people should, everybody should see Reservation Dogs. Yeah, it's incredible. It's yeah. super funny. Great characters, great drama. Uh, but it, it, yeah, the, the humor, the, the, the blending of humor and drama throughout. I just I love those characters. It's so it's so good. Uh, Angela, what what would you recommend to listeners? I'm a reader, so I would definitely recommend A Pipe for February or Mean Spirit if you want to look more at the Osage Murders. All so. right. Yeah, good. We we de- frankly we probably need more reading recommendations. There's like you and my friend Chad and a couple other people that'll always do reading. Do books, yeah. So thank you yeah, for that. Yeah. For sure. Lauren Chapman. Well, I'm starting my early uh campaign to get Lily Gladstone a gold trophy uh next year. So I'm also gonna double down and echo the sentiments about um fancy dance. But in particular, I mean I became known of her from certain women, which I think Martin Scorsese was did too as well. I think he mentioned that in an interview. Um and uh, I remember watching that film, and I feel like she ran away with the entire movie. That third chapter of that of that movie, I think, is incredible and very similar to her performance in Killers. Very quiet, understated, but her face is a map of the world. 
and again know. acting against people who are well known, well known, yeah. have press have, have yeah. presence and in, in master cloud. of the form, yes. master yeah. of form, and here she is, and I'm like cannot take my eyes off of her because again, without saying anything, there's just so much information being conveyed, and I think that those kind of nuanced, restrained performances just don't get enough attention. They always go for the loud, big, showy one. I'm like, but listen to the quiet girl in the corner. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm she's she's the most interesting part of of, of that film and this film. So, well, you all have pretty much said all my recommendations. I have a couple. Of, I have a couple other ones. You told the, took the best ones. I would add in terms of the Lily Gladstone. Please distribute this uh, Quantum Cowboys, uh, oh, which was yes. also a dead center. That actually was low key. I mean, yes. Fancy Dance was incredible, but in terms of my wheelhouse, like in terms of the weird sci-fi animation styles, sure. I loved that movie. So, but I just all of those films get picked up and audiences seek it out. Quantum Cowboys get seek it out so I can get the second and third ones they've already got planned. So, <laughs> please let's go. Yeah. I don't even know how to pitch That's the fun. film. I don't even know how to pitch the film. It's, it's yeah. Just it's look up Western. Lily Gladstone. Look at her. her look at Lily Gladstone. Yeah. Quantum Cowboys. Gladstone films. Yeah. I'll link it, but like Quantum, Quantum Cowboys. Physics. Yeah, uh, intermixed with with animate various animation styles mm -hmm. set in the old west. Yeah, so, sort of. Sort of. Kind of. Sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort <laughs> of. Kind of. Yeah. Ambiguous. Yeah. Old west. <laughs> um, Two other things I'd add. Uh, just give a shout out to HBO's Watchmen, only because uh, in terms of how Tulsa has been portrayed um, on either the big or the small screen. There's not a lot of great examples of that. You don't have to watch the whole show. I mean, the whole show is great, but I think if you, the, the, the opening 15 minutes, I think really displays the Tulsa angle, pretty true to form before you get into all the superhero stuff, sci-fi stuff later. Um, also not about indigenous necessarily, um, but there will be blood. Uh, a lot of people getting exploited for oil money. With that said, that concludes our spoiler-free section, and we're going to jump into the spoiler discussion. So if you do not want to be spoiled on Killers of the Flower Moon, go ahead and tune out now. You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on. Yeah. So I, I want to start. This is the thing we've been dancing around this whole conversation. Whose story is this to tell? And I want also want to talk a little bit about how Scorsese's point of view shapes the narrative. Example for you, the listener, before we get into the, like the, the the details. This film originally had Leonardo DiCaprio starring uh, starring as Tom White the FBI agent who was played by Jesse Plemons in the film. And the original script placed a much larger emphasis on how the FBI was formed. However, during, I think it was either right before, or at the very beginning of the pandemic, DiCaprio and Scorsese had a talk and DiCaprio basically was like, yeah, we're really not getting to the heart of the film. I want to play Ernest. At that point, they rewrite the entire film. Scorsese and the uh, other co-writer. Eric Roth. Roth. Eric Roth. Thank you, had Roth there. Um, and they put that's when they put Ernest and Molly, Lily Gladstone, front and center uh, of the story. So there's been a lot of discussion around the question: Is Scorsese the guy? He did receive he he did receive initial blessing and eventually praise from the Osage chief, Standing Bear, as Bam's already noted. But I, I want to start. I I just want to start this part of the conversation off as 
Why is that an important question to ask? And I know that might seem obvious to those of us around the table, but for a lot of listeners out there who are, who are more uh, casual with their film going or the media, it's really important to, to ask the question, why is this person the main character? Why is the writer director putting this person at the center? So um, with that, uh, Sunrise, I'll start with you. Why do you think this is an important question to consider when we're watching, processing, and ultimately forming ideas and opinions based on Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, the history of storytelling and media making um, has been uh, overtaken by one particular perspective. And that's not to over-homogenize, but for the most part, um, storytelling has been dominated by white cis males. And um, that's not to say that they don't have perspectives or that they don't have something to say or that it's not valid, but it's a monopoly. It's been a monopoly on most storytelling and most storytelling that's been widely distributed. So that means that um, all other perspectives that are not that gender orientation background uh, have not had the same equitable amount of time to share their perspective, um, even if it's the same event. You know, so that means that um, there's a lot of um, progress that needs to be made to make an equitable amount of storytelling from other perspectives other than that own, that one. And, and again, I reiterate that it's it's not to eliminate that perspective. That perspective has its own valid um, positioning, but it is inequitable. Right. Um, so, you know, it's helpful to have another individual say, I saw it from this perspective, right? I mean, that's what we do when we gather evidence in a car crash, an accident. It, we don't take one perspective and say, this is what happened in the accident. Let me write this up in the report. And that's what we'll do. Um, you know, it's like the officer ideally takes the perspective of all parties involved and um, not even just the people that got into the car crash, but the observers that are by the side, um, people that um, maybe even made the road. Um, so there's a, a larger idea of like what a perspective is about a particular event. Um, one person does not hold um, the keys to truth. Um, so, uh, I think that's why it's really important to get any perspective, um, regardless of, uh, race or gender, um, just in general, but in specific, in this case, when we're dealing about a, a, a particular identity and a history related to that identity and a, a value system related to that identity, it's important to include. Yeah. Bam, anything you want to add to that? Well, I, I will say that I've spoken to about a dozen Osage people uh, since 2021 about the making of this film. I took a trip to Pawhuska just to speak to people who are Osage about the making of the film. Um, and that was in some cases a response to what was I was seeing in that mainstream media where, you know, everybody's all excited about Martin and worked up about, you know, Apple and Paramount and $200 million and Martin Scorsese and he's in Oklahoma and he's with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and they're going to be making a movie together and the Osage perspective didn't seem, it seemed to be lost on everybody that this was a real story based on like real people who actually are still around who might have some say about it. And I will say that they've monitored, that the Osage nation was monitoring this. Like when the rights went up in 2016, they were watching like who got the rights to it. They had people that they want, hoped would get it and hoped wouldn't get it. And 
the Osage people that I spoke to are not unaware of the realities of the world. I mean, they're all aware that if it's going, that you're making a trade-off. It's a trade-off to have Martin Scorsese make your movie. On one hand, he's going to get $200 million. It's going to be a major production. And he seemed, after they talked to him, really they felt like they got through to him because they will tell you that it was after we had conversations with him. The chief sat down with him. They, he, they came into the chief's office and the chief said, who, what are your, what are your intentions here with our story? And that they were invited to a community gathering in Greyhorse, where Molly Burkhart was from, where people who were elders in the Osage tribe got up and spoke about how their grandparents were killed and all these kind of things and made it clear, if you're interested in coming to town to make a white savior story, we're not really interested in being involved in that. Um, and so I really, they really feel like they were listened to and they were heard. And that was what led to those rewrites. That it wasn't just, you know, that one day DiCaprio woke up and decided he'd rather play Ernest Burkhart. Um, so I feel like, but they were aware there was a trade-off, right? That on one hand, you were letting someone else tell your story. You were entrusting your story to somebody else. But they were going to get this big budget and get these top names and get these opportunities that no native filmmaker was going to get. And the exposure was going to be to the extent that no native filmmaker was going to be able to get. So on the other hand, you did have, I spoke to Ryan Redcorn, who was one of Sterling Harjo's contemporaries and collaborators, who said, it is frustrating to know that I have children who are Osage, that the perspective that people have about who they are is going to come from this movie, and I have no control over how this piece of cinema is going to be made. And that's going to determine how people look at me and my children and my family because that's the perspective that they get. So I think that it's important to note that the Osage people were aware. You're making a trade-off. You get Martin Scorsese to make your movie. He seems to be a good ally and he has good intentions and he's going to get all of this attention and all of these opportunities. But no, he's not an indigenous person telling the story. So he can only do the best that he can do to tell it. And so, and I feel like that's a fair perspective. Um, because the, again, it's the vestiges of the racism. No, it's not a question of, can you get 12 white men to convict a white guy for killing a, a, an Osage person, but it is still a vestige of racism, right? That certain people get to make $200 million movies and certain people don't. So I, I feel like it's the reality that we live in and that it's not like the Osage weren't aware of it going into the film. So I think that all the ones I've talked to are happy with the film, but there is this a little bit of a, I don't know if it's bittersweet or something like that. There's a little bit of an asterisk to it of would have been better if we could, have been, you know, lived in a world where we could tell our own story. But if you lived in that world, there probably wouldn't be this story, right? Like this story wouldn't exist if that, if we lived in yeah. that ideal world, like yeah. we, or we would have known about it sooner, probably sure. if, it did, oh, if it had happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess that's my thought and that's, me sharing the thought of the, what the Osage people have shared with me, I have a completely different perspective as a woman because I would never, I would never try to take that native perspective, which is that I love that Sunrise mentioned that scene of the sisters on the blankets talking in Osage about these guys that they're hooked up with. I would have loved to have seen someone like Erica Tremblay get her hands on a scene like that because I think it's important to note that the heart of this story is Molly 
but it's being written by two guys. And there's a romanticism, I think, of the relationship between Molly and Ernest that I think it's important to note that until in my lifetime, the last 40 to 50 years, is only when women in America have been able to live financially independent lives. We're talking like late 20th century, post-70s. But like when this movie is set, women would not be able to do that. No, not at all. I mean, like there is no opportunity. So throughout history, women forming relationships with men isn't just romance. It's a survival skill because you can't survive as a woman in the world in the 1920s without a man. So I think that it would have been interesting to see that scene or scenes like it explore those issues. Like they're very aware of the fact they're not duped in that scene that these white guys are coming around because they want their money. Well, no, no, I mean, they're not, they're not like confused. Coyote. She, he looks like a yeah. coyote, right? They're right. not confused here, but it would be an interesting to see, to hear their perspective on does that, I mean, is the hope of what you're going for? Do you hope that maybe like if you marry a white guy, because a lot of Osage women did, that's why all this was allowed to happen was so many Osage women married white men, Right. Did they marry these white guys hoping that they become the guardian of your fortune? And then instead of some rando banker holding your money, maybe your husband gets it. So it's one step closer. I mean, are they, is it a, is it a social structure thing? I mean, is it better to be married to a white ne'er-do-well than it is to be married to another Osage? I would have loved to have seen it explored from a woman's perspective of, look, we got to marry somebody, right? I mean, Molly herself, they even mentioned she was in an arranged marriage with an Osage before she married Ernest. And then her mom was mad because all four of them married white men, including two of them that married the same one. I would have loved to have heard more of the psychology of why so many Osage women married white men. Like, what were the social and financial sort of settings that made that? But I think you have to be a woman to explore that. You can't be a couple of guys who look at it romantically of, oh, well, they were in love, of course. And it's like, yeah, because all women married for love always in the history of the world where you have to have one in order to get to live. So. Yeah. I want to briefly say that uh, now this is not real advocacy, but uh, I feel like what you're talking about is briefly in there for like two or three beats. In in the moment where she's sort of assessing him, she's like, uh, why, why do you live here? Yeah. You know, it's a great yeah. scene. The yeah. uh, the iconic scene from yes. the uh, the still image we got that yes. was all we had for this film for two years. Yes, mm-hmm. which by the way was one of the, my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah, she, mm-hmm. yeah. when she's asking yeah. him those questions. Yes, mm-hmm. but it feels like she's asking these questions to determine: is this the person that's going to help me in my circumstances? Right. Yes. And it felt mm-hmm. like it was all practicality, really. Right. Yeah. Including I, this question about whether or not he's afraid of his uncle. Yes. Well, right? and, and she. It's she, like she's conveying how much she how much she can tolerate you right. know what I mean? yeah. about it. It's right. like, you know, like I know you're here for my money, mm-hmm. but what's the net positive here for me right. in yes. terms of what I endure yes. versus. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. and I think she's sizing, yeah, she's sizing up in a lot of ways. And I think one of the, my hunches, this is not explicit in the text, but Ernest is not a smart guy. Like, and it's very clear to her that he's not smart. He's an idiot. I right. mean, to be frank, I mean, they, yes. I mean, uh, Jesse Ernest. Plemons, even, Later says your uncle took advantage of you due, due to your disposition. Which, well, he's yeah. malleable at least. Right. Yes, absolutely. Right. Oh, no, right. he's, yes. You know, he's yeah. dumb as a bag of rocks. Right. <laughs> but I think she's looking at him and saying, okay, are you going to hurt me? Are you going to let me do what I want to do? It was a great scene yeah. where she's sizing him up. Yeah. And I feel like she's also asking, are you going to be able to defend, you know, yeah. against your uncle who is clearly like one of these? Um, I mean, she's not dumb. Right. Yeah. Right. 
she knows what the potential is. Uh, I feel like she's looking for someone that can maybe physically fight, but at least someone who's not willing to, or somebody that could confront his uncle or yeah, his uncle. Or protect her yeah. from right. to protect whatever, yeah. you know, from whatever circumstances yeah. that yeah. comes yeah. about. But, it, but you're right. It, like the fact that we don't explore it further, you know, yeah. especially among these women, I mean, like they giggle and it's funny and it's great performances, but it's like, there's so much more to explore in that particular scenario of like, yeah. you know, what they actually do choose in their own life and they're going to talk more about it and they're going to be more practical and it's not just all of the joke and uh, that would be great to see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Angela, any, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, I mean, the whether, choice of, the choice of who's, who, who's, who's directing, what is that leaning for the text? What are your thoughts? Anything to add? I mean, I would echo what everybody has said and I would put this, I would add this to it. If anybody understands the violence in the corruption that was happening by the white men, it was him. And I think that he went a long way to peel back those onion layers bit by bit. Cause I mean, I just remember I was like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. At certain little bits, little peaks at things. And I was like, it, Oh yeah. Him. Oh, and he's involved too. Really? Just from like one line, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Oh, we're spoiler free. Or, we're, we're in spoilers. We're spoilers. spoilers. Oh, okay. Say like, everything. It's all like, like digging for the the bullet in the brain. Yeah. Oh. That hole. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. Very it's everywhere. It's not just the king of the Osage Hills. It's this guy. And, and you know, the way that network slowly gets mm-hmm. wider and mm-hmm. wider and you see all of the corruption <laughs> and the in violence. Wide shot in the room. You can't trust your yes. doctor. And, yeah, and everything's After dark. The trial. And, yeah. So, yeah. Well, even notice so, one of the jurors is the KKK, KKK guy absolutely. who gives her money. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And that had no influence whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Decision yeah. Yeah. And it was just and it was just a passing scene. And you're just like, oh my gosh, it's that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think that he understands that part of it so well that he was able to do justice to conveying that to mm-hmm. the audiences in a way that I don't think anybody else would. I mean, you know, anybody that who like, who is it? Michael Bay. Oh, no. Michael Bay. What about Michael Bay? You know, he would, does blow yeah, stuff up. Blow stuff yeah. up. <laughs> um, I, I they will say, I, you mentioned the violence here and that's something we didn't, I didn't get to in the spoiler free section. Uh, so he's known for, especially in his eighties, early career for sort of making violence look really cool and yeah. stylish he is definitely 180 in his late career. And that's, yes. um, I, I loved seeing that he really, if you, when you watch The Irishman, it's like the opposite. It's the violence is brutal. It's quick. It's disarming. And it's awful. You never feel good about it. Yeah. And I, I like, that was something that he deployed. I really feel like The Irishman was the first time he really nailed it. Yeah. That he was able to apply to the murders in this film. I mean, even that that montage where the, 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 the woman, the 20 year old woman gets shot just on her front lawn with her baby. Oh my god! It's just heartbreaking, and it's it's thing fat, uh, fast, not sexy at all. There's nothing good about it. It's, it's so awful. realistic. I mean, because right. you feel like great that actor really Ben Hall did that scene. Yeah. In general, so yeah. jarred to see him be the one that he's such a sweet yeah. man. But I, I, very effective. With I, I texted Jen Raider on the second viewing, and I was like, I am so scared for <laughs> Ben Hall to be around you <laughs> ever. <laughs> it's not his fault, yeah. you know. But it's just like this subconscious feeling of like, I, keep these two people separated. Yes. <laughs> well, but I also think that there's a great. Um, 
there's this violence, but then there's this sort of great sort of like subtlety to mm-hmm. to a lot of it that um, that sort of ricochets back and forth between the the subtlety and the unsubtlety. Because on one hand, you have this horribly violent scene, and then you have Lily Gladstone's narration that says suicide. He took the baby and ran off with her. Right, it's yeah. like, okay, if she committed suicide, where'd the baby go? Like, there's a baby carriage here, guys. How could that be yeah. a suicide? That doesn't right. even make sense. But there's sort of this dry tone where she goes, suicide. Like, yeah, like how could you declare that as suicide, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. right? I think that you sort of see that with the mm. the Brendan Fraser critiques that have come up with the film where he, you see him in this scene and all of a sudden toward the end of the movie, he's there and he's like, in this big booming voice, and somebody said it was like the Kool Aid Man bursting through the wall. But <laughs> I mean, that really is that really is. But it, that's yeah. really how David Grant describes it in the book. He's a composite character of the lawyers, but it makes it very clear that it's a miracle that the guys that got convicted got convicted because their lawyers turned it into a circus. Yeah, like it, they talked about the lawyers, like and that whole deal of like him wanting to like. Like can you know consult with his client who is the witness against the other client? That's the actual stuff that happened at the trial. I mean, yeah. they're actually depicting how much of like, like a like how much it was weighed in favor of Hale getting away with it. I mean, you know yeah. how much of a circus that these guys turned it into. It's like if we can't get a, it, we'll we'll still get away with it. We'll get away with it by turning it into a zoo, mm-hmm. and that they really tried to do that. Yeah. And so I thought it was interesting how you would take these moments that. You sort of have these like very, you're having this sort of like interrogation kind of scene that's very subtle and very, you know, sort of like like elegantly paced and things like that where he's breaking down Ernest's character. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you switch to the trial and here comes Brendan Fraser. Yeah. You know, like. I fresh off an Oscar. Yeah, he's fresh off his Oscar <laughs> yeah. and just bellowing as loud yeah. as he can, turning it into a, to a well, kangaroo court. You know what else I love about that scene? Not to get off the topic too much, but again, going back to what we were saying earlier about the form. Um, so especially last night I saw it with a bunch of friends, like a group of friends and we were talking afterwards and they were like, all right, the movie's almost over. We're in court. And then there's that scene where it goes crazy and they're like, no, it's like another 30 minutes. It's the same feeling. It's like, yeah, well they thought the court, the, the trial was almost done too. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it was yeah. really brilliant filmmaking anyway. Yes. That's the, but see, bringing it back though, that's the kind of like stuff you get with Scorsese. Exactly. So you, yeah. there are there are things you yeah. get. There's just also a lot of things you don't get. Yeah. Right? Well, I was going to say, like, to Angela's point, it's not that this the psychology of Leo's character and, and the psychology of, of uh, Robert De Niro's character is not valid to the story. It is. It's like, because um, they could have skated over that and not gave them any nuance and just made it like, you know, we, we get the first conversation we have is like, you know, like, like this, the, the seeds being planted about what's going to happen, you know, and just the intricacies and the subtleties of each decision made and all the way down to him marrying her and why he should marry her and all that. And so um, I don't think that there's no value in seeing their point of view and how far they were able to go with it. I just think you come into the film and I think your enjoyment, it's hard to say enjoyment, you know what I mean? But your appreciation for the film um I think is going to have different varying results depending on whether you're going to see it to get the information versus like the, again, the psychology of like Molly's character. Cause that is what's missing is more of that. Right. I think the single most like, like effective like moment where I was like hanging on to her every word, it's in the trailer as well is when she's walking through the train station yeah. yep. and we get her, her inner 
thoughts about the men around her. You can see the rage in her eyes. You can see her like, I should kill these white men who did this to me. All my these family. white people who are staring back at her. Who are staring back to me. I love that. And I wanted more, like maybe three more sequences like that, even if it was just, you know, in just her, 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 her mindset during that. Because that's the soul, that's the heart of the story. You know what I mean? Everything surrounding it is just kind of the mechanics of it you know what i mean like how it came to now be so. I, I i don't disagree with you what i will say though is again it's all about who's making the film main yeah, character no, the yeah. advantage now uh the advantage again not better or worse than just the advantage of choosing Ernest mm -hmm. um as the main character with lily gladstone having a prominent role just not the main character is and also their their choice to reveal from the get go who's doing the murder. I mean, yeah. you know from the get go, which from my understanding the novel it's more of a mystery uh, or a long play. Yeah. Um. The the advantage to that would is we get a very Scorsese. He's showing well, how could this have happened? Well, let's show you how it happened. Yeah. But from the guys who did it and how they manipulated the system, how they were how they're able to take advantage of just how complete uh, implicit. And how yeah. complacent also both the, the citizens of uh, the area were yeah. to the Osage people. I mean, you know, there is an advantage if you're trying to do the uh, kind of the, the critique of the systemic way that this was able to happen right. and who, how, how they came about. And I think that I think, too, that his approach to the story, the rewriting of it is probably the best thing he did for the film. Absolutely. Because. Had it been told the other way, I think we would have had far more criticisms than we have today, you know, and I think that um, it's still not enough, I would say, but I do think that the by shifting the focus to that relationship, we were able to get a more personal, intimate, like, in, you know, involved, we wouldn't have cared as much, I think, particularly we had a face to put it on. And Molly, Molly is the stand in for the Osage people in this story. You know what I mean? At large, you know what I mean? And I feel like, you know, um, by giving by giving that 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 relationship weight, you know what I mean? Like the the peeling of the onion, as you said, of the corruption and everything happens like again, it's 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 all it's all like she's she's our our surrogate character to, you know what I mean, to and, and embrace all those details. Right. And I think that that, yeah, had they focused more on the case, it would have been more of a courtroom procedural probably still would have been. Like sturdily made, but not. It wouldn't have. I don't think it would have had the emotionality. My understanding the from the original version was that Molly Burkhart was boiled down to just a handful of scenes, mm -hmm. and she got yes. like a big monologue, and mm -hmm. then. Um, and Ernest was also at, at sort of similarly one of the conspirators with his uncle, but not, and the one who basically became the one to testify, but not to this extent. And I do think that you're correct, and I don't want to take away anything from Leonardo DiCaprio or his performance or True. anything like that. Because I do think that it's what's this, what I thought struck me on the second viewing and, and it speaks to a little larger issue is you think about from a female perspective, I think about like, how could Molly Burkhart fall in love with this person? And I think that was one of the, even one of the Osage consultants who spoke, you know, who was kind of had really mixed feelings about it was like, that's not love. That's abuse. And that's not the same thing. But I, I think that what I caught the second time of watching it is in what Ernest won't admit to. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like, he never, like he, as far as he's concerned, did your uncle try to get you to marry this woman? He said, no, I, I fell in love with her when I met her driving my cab. And right. the things that he won't admit to her at the end, the truth he will not speak, is that Ernest is convinced that he loves this person. 
Ernest believes it, and the reason Molly believes it is because Ernest believes it. Until she realizes that he can't confront the hard truth. Until he can't confront the hard truth. Then she realizes he may have convinced himself, but he didn't love her. And I think that that also speaks to the wider issue, is that the reason why so many Osage people fell for it was that the white people involved had convinced themselves this isn't really wrong. Because all I'm doing is taking advantage of Indians who are dying anyway. All these Osage people will be dead soon. The government's been trying to kill them off for years. So they convince themselves it's not really wrong. It's not really that bad. And so I think that's the reason why. And I think that that's one of the things that Hale says at the beginning. They're smart. The Osage Mm -hmm. people couldn't have it just taken away from them. You had to trick them into it. They don't talk had, much, but yeah, they but yeah, they're, they're smart. You but had, they know everything that's going on. But they had to be deceived into it. And the way she was deceived, she was such a smart person, the person that was in charge of taking care of her whole family. She was taken in by Ernest because Ernest believes it. Ernest believes he loves her. And so that's why she believes Ernest loved her was because Ernest believes it and can't even admit it at the end. That he was literally trying to kill you the whole time. Mm-hmm, and yeah. he can't admit it. Well, so and I even if even really if he didn't know he was trying to kill her, that's what he was doing. That, that, I think that's a great. I guess we'll we, we might we might jump right ahead, but like that's a thing where he. I think he believes everything he's saying, even if uh, he does not actually, in his heart of hearts, believe it. I think it's a sin. A lot of a lot of people, but especially white people, are really good at just like convincing themselves that things they do aren't terrible. Convincing. Convincing ourselves that this nation wasn't built off of murders of entire nations. Like, it's like, you know, and that's kind of the thing that that's the sin that I feel like Ernest, and especially when you put it into a final point at the end, sort of represents, oh, he's just a white dude who's convinced himself he hasn't done anything wrong. He just loved his wife. But no, you did do a lot of terrible things to her, whether you want to admit it to yourself or not. Yeah. That's right. There's a couple of things here, but uh, first, it's interesting how um, you give him the benefit of the doubt that he is he has to convince himself, or that there is uh, maybe a, a choice. I, I the way that he paints Ernest to me is a way in which he does not even recognize that the system is sort of pushing him through this, and there's no there's no need for him to convince himself because he he just believes. He, he, I don't even know if he has to believe. He just does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And, and the system just propels him through oh, it. His definitely. uncle just guides him through it. That's one thing that I think is happening. Uh, he's very impressionable. Very, absolutely. Very and impressionable. And he's not, he thinks he's the smartest person in the room, but he's, he's really not yeah. nearly as smart or as clever as he thinks and he, he is. And he loves money. And he loves money. Yeah, and, loves women. Money. and women. And women. And women. And women was second. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. Women, women are second. Um, although he has no prejudice over which women. Which, which kind of really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Which was interesting. Yeah. But, but this is related to like uh, voice. You know, like what we're talking about here is the result of an individual who's making these distinctions here. Maybe an individual, individual, so like Scorsese and Roth, the fact that he is making these choices so that we are thinking about how unmotivated this character is and how um, uneducated they are and how the system has an influence on him. Yes. This is coming from Scorsese. Yes. Yes. Right? And this is thematic. We can see this in his other work. Sure. He's yep. really incredible articulating what a system is and how it has an influence on those that participate. And, um, uh, you know, like this is important to allow people who may not be within a community to be able to speak about a community because observers have just as much information and they see things that those that are heated 
with emotion and with the inside that sometimes can't see, right? And I, I think there are definitely individuals that are Osage, that are Caucasian in the story, that are very similar. They don't, um, they don't see the the way that a system has positioned them into a certain action. And and very specifically, there's like the uh, uh, moment that um, the grandparents to uh, Ernest, or, or maybe the parents, they're sitting at the table and they're sort of like judging. Oh, yes, I yeah. think it's the aunt and uncle, according the, to the book. Yeah, okay, yeah. So from the yeah. I didn't get that from they the book. Oh, were, they talking, were they talking about the siblings? Yeah, yes. they're talking about the How children. How many times have we heard that conversation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this amazing moment. Yeah, because oh, it's, it's amazing. Whoa. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because it's very rarely depicted. But yeah. talking about the skin color on one side of the table of the one side of the room, and we are very clearly uh, indicating that there's a prejudice toward the lighter skinned child over the one that is darker skinned or looks more native. Uh, but just previous, just prior to that moment of prejudice, which I feel like is something that uh, indigenous audiences recognize. We have the mother of the three women also making a judgment based on a prejudice of why are you marrying all these white men? I mean, the system is putting those men into a position where they're taking advantage. So we understand that. But she is also biased. And this is something that also happens. It's sort of like the belief of blood quantum. You know, uh, there's an interesting sort of like analysis of this. And I think he's being critical of the mother as much as he is being critical of the aunt and the uncle. Yeah. And they are both succumbing to prejudice because of this particular system. Well, and at some point, the elders do point out that mm -hmm. the next generation will no longer speak yeah. their language. Right. We'll be marrying people that are not of their... I right. mean, they, they basically... Predict what's happening now. Yeah, it's the, absolutely. It's the first. It's the first scene of the movie that yeah. they do that. They yeah. lay it out. And they're like mourning that, basically mourning the death of their culture, which is absolutely. just and that's a heartbreak at the, the very outset of the movie. Absolutely, mm -hmm. but just and this to, is the incarnation of that. Yeah, this is the incarnation of that. But at that moment, I felt like was being critical of Tantu, an elder, a cinematic elder. Uh, but the the fact that we see the sort of like prejudice from an individual. That we normally associate as being the um, the victim of prejudice, mm -hmm. everybody is culpable yeah. here in this scene, and this is a, the the thing of Scorsese is that the victims are also um, uh, perpetrators of prejudice in this particular circumstance. And that's something that we don't say out loud to each we other. We don't say it, no, absolutely, and we probably wouldn't say it. I would no, be I fearful would, to would, do that, for especially the repercussions yeah, in absolutely. community. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. not. Yeah, and so the the fact that he's able to go to that place in a way that I feel like an Osage director would not. Yeah, uh, that is the like benefit. that perspective. Probably yeah, absolutely. That's the benefit of having an individual that's outsider make a comment about things that they're seeing, um, and that was incredible to me. Um, I think that he also does a really great job. As you guys were talking about, you know, why would why would she be with him? Why would she be in this relationship? Because it was normal. That was a normal Absolutely. relationship in the 1920s. And indigenous women, historically, have shouldered the weight of their community and its continuation. And so you see how much she's striving to keep things going normally. And, <laughs> and when... When the house explodes and she screams, 
that's gets me every time too. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, mm-hmm. it's a rough scene. Mm-hmm. Well, because she knows. Because she knows when he opens the door. Like, he didn't even have to say anything. He doesn't even really have to shake. He shakes his head, but he doesn't even really have to shake his head. She already knows. She, she knows. knows. She, she already knows. knows. Yeah. She's been a fear. I mean, mm-hmm. because of the everything else that's been occurring, this is, like, the worst news she could get. She's like, I've been waiting to, uh, sadly, waiting to get this type of news. Especially, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of, like, uh, they imply there's a lot of rumors spreading around the town about another murder, you oh, know. Yeah. So when it comes, it's like, you just... And they know it's coming. Yeah. People are leaving. Yes. They have the lights on yeah. their they front yards. The yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're just waiting. They're just waiting yeah. for it. And that's why I thought it was so important about the point you made earlier. And it was also something that um, when I spoke to Chief Sandy Bear, it was something I had not considered before, was how many Osage people left. They they fled Absolutely. from this place that they had worked so hard to make theirs. Because if you know the full history of it, you know that the Osage got bumped around just like every other native tribe by the U.S. government until they finally picked the most worthless piece of land that they could find and said, can we buy our own reservation if you promise never to move us again? And that was what set them up to even be. And that was interesting at a panel that I was at last week that had David Grant and it had Chief Standing Bear, but it also had Governor Anatubby of the Chickasaw Nation there. And he mentioned the Chickasaw never even got a chance to do that because the Osage were smart. They eventually decided they were tired of moving and they bought their own land so that they could not be moved anymore. So they owned it. So the government couldn't just say, oh, well, there's oil on it, so now you have to leave. They owned it. So they the best they could do was cut it up and figure out how to exploit them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they figured it out. And from according to Grant's book, and they knew there was at least some oil on there. They were not completely ignorant of the fact that there was oil. They had no idea how much. Yeah. Nobody knew how much there was. But that... They basically had said, I mean, but Anatobia's point was that the five tribes didn't even get that opportunity. Like they mm-hmm. were exploited to, they'd never bought their own reservation. They never decided to pool their money and say, we want to buy our land here and never move. Um, and so I think that's an interesting aspect of it as well, is that he does acknowledge the Osage were smart. They set this up to where they, it's theirs. Yeah. You have to take it from them. And they did. And they did. Um, but I think that it's an it's an interesting point that I hadn't thought about how many people were dispersed off of this homeland that they had done all of this to have, to bought it themselves, staked a claim on a piece of land that everybody thought was worthless, and said we're going to make our stand here, and and then hundreds and thousands of them leave because they're afraid of being killed. Didn't the tall chiefs they went to California? They moved to California. Yeah. Mm. Well, guys. We're going to have to move along due to time um, because there's so much to talk about. Um, I think maybe we can just really quickly, we were kind of touching on it a little bit, just the kind of, I'm going to just transition to the ending piece and we can, you know, ad lib as needed in there. But I want to bring it back to sort of the confession. Uh, you know, Ernest does confess his crimes in the court and then has that final interaction with Molly where he, he says, my soul is clear. I've done the things told I just want to get, I told all the truths I'm, and I want to be back to you. And then she asks him about the insulin. What? Um, I don't know about you all. And you know, I don't know. This is probably some of the thing that was probably written for the movie to a certain degree would be my suspicion. But um, this is the moment in the movie when I just, the, the weight of the whole movie gut punches, you just like break on the inside where this guy can't, he really can't, come to terms with the fact that he's been murdering her family and trying to kill her this whole time. 
and that she believed up until that moment, she wanted so badly to believe that this guy was protecting her. Um, it's just deeply, deeply sad and, and tragic. Uh, and I think, you know, likely underscores a lot of the larger macro relationship between, uh, you know, America and the Osage. I just want to turn it over to you guys. What did you guys make of this final interaction? Lauren, I'll start with you on this. I feel like this will be her Oscar clip because <laughs> I think that um, it, it conveys so much um, because she's already, I mean, after the confession, you know, we don't get many cut tos of her cut, like cuts to her when he's giving the confession in the courtroom. I was longing for that. I was longing to see how she was processing every confession in in real time as he was saying it. Um, and they 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 kind of wisely like don't show that so that this moment this this subsequent scene can have more impact. And it's almost like at this point the only thing she wants to know is that is that that piece of information and his inability to say it answered the question for her and there was nothing else left to be said at that point she needed to hear him not respond you know what i mean in front of her in real time and she just leaves and you know she doesn't press him she doesn't ask him to keep you know like are you sure and give you another chance nothing, nothing like that it was like that's all i needed to know she needed to validate it for herself that you know and that and that does it it carries so much weight you know, some, uh, you know, just that, um, the, you know, that at that point there's, there was nothing left. There was nothing left for her to, to, you know, um, to ask at that point. So, yeah. Um, I found that scene very powerful. Yeah. Bam, what was your take on the final interaction between the two of them? I thought it was, um, I think you're right. I think it'll be her, her Oscar clip and she better win. Fingers crossed. We'll Oscar, don't Man. make me come. I had to come after them don't, after a few things last year. Don't give too many. Don't go too much. Don't put too much weight into that. But uh, it'd be nice. It yeah, would be it would nice. Be, yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. I don't it think it's be, gonna happen. I don't, yeah. yeah, that's the that's the the best. Yeah, it'll be nice. Yeah. It'd be nice. Be nice. Yeah. Give it to her. They're gonna be like, oh, well, we nominated you. You're gonna have to be satisfied with that. <laughs> and yeah. Emma Stone with her one eyebrow is Emma gonna Stone, get it, and I'm already Emma mad. Stone's gonna get it. So, oh, I don't even see that movie. I'm already mad, Lauren. You're gonna have to hold me down during that screening. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was incredible from the perspective that it, it fit a lot of the history. It was true to life, and it was also a very powerful scene, because from everything that I have read in David Grant's book and elsewhere, Molly stayed married to Ernest through all of these trials and went every day to every trial, the mm-hmm. trial of watching his brother be tried for her sister's murder. All of them went through all of them. And when all the trials were over, she divorced him. It wasn't until the very end that she basically, once she'd heard everything, she decided she'd heard enough and she was done. And so I thought that it was interesting way of sort of consolidating all that history into a moment Mm -hmm. that was a scene that obviously was a scene that had to be contrived. I mean, you know, we don't know what happened when they met, you know, face to face. But I thought that it was, um, I thought that it was really well done, just a masterfully done scene, because it sort of sums it all up, right? I mean, it, if you, I mean, he can't admit it, but that's what tells her what she needs to know. Yeah, you did it. Okay, that's okay. all I needed. Yeah, I'm, I can be done now. So, yeah. I thought that was um, that was a pretty incredible scene. Now hurry up and get to the part where we talk about the ending. Oh, the ending. Yeah. Okay, real quick, uh, Angela <laughs> or Sunrise, anything you guys want to add about the the final interaction between Ernest and Molly? I would have liked to have seen more of her coming to that realization 
that when she sits down and asks that question, that's the turning point for her. Whether it would have been cutaways during the trial, whether it would have been some conversation in the hospital when she's recovering. I mean, just any, anything along the way to where we get to that little button up would have, I think, would have built on that Oscar moment. Lily Gladstone's performance definitely, I mean, I totally bought that scene without what you just described, but I think it's purely, not, it's not the script, it's purely her performance because she's just wears so many different emotions on her face and you're like, oh, she's thinking something and, you know, the whole, every time she's on camera. Um, but I, I hear that. It's definitely not in the script, that's for sure. Sunrise? Uh, I had all the same responses, particularly about her um, perspective being missing and her uh, uh, Lily's performance. Uh, but that moment for me really is um, a summation almost of um, uh, the, the structure of the film for me. And that's related to Scorsese's uh, approach to structuring in these last works, which is this sort of like uh, see seesaw. Um, guilty or not guilty? Does he know? Does he not know? Is he uh, is he a lover or is he a hater? Is he a savior or is he a devil? Um, is he a husband or is he a perpetrator? Um, th this goes back and forth all the way through the film. And it kind of finally puts into a moment of settling um, based on her decision. You know, and I felt like that was really smart just to, you know, give this particular woman the agency structurally. I don't know if it's the best because of the, the perspective that we're talking about is missing. Um, but this is something that just seems to be consistent, again, with his particular voice. This is what comes with the voice. And this is what I think is happening in silence, right? Um, is he, um, you know, is he crazy? Is he not? Is, is he uh, the example? Is he worthy? Is he not? Is he a Christian or is he Buddhist? Is he not, you know... I feel like that's happening in Shutter Island. Is he crazy? Is he not? Yep. And ultimately, at the end of all of these films, including The Irishman, does he know? Does he not know? Um, is it real? Is it not real? Is it memory or is it fact? Um, at the end of all these films, uh, what's interesting is it's it's both. Yeah. And that's, that's a really difficult thing for any um, person to accept. Like, that's the contradiction of humanity. And that really puts Scorsese in this position where he's a master. And at the end, he's both, I think. And it's unfortunate that it's also tied into like this uh, fictive element of of the love story. He is both um, a perpetrator, but he's also a lover. He, he's he's the the savior, and he's also the devil. He, he is was poisoning himself too. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and in a way of a victim himself. I mean, mm -hmm. because he was definitely taken advantage mm -hmm. of. By his uncle, and mm -hmm. he's definitely a perpetrator as the well. Scene in the Masonic yeah. Temple, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And it's it's hard for me, and and that's such an interesting scene too, because it just goes to show you just the entitlement of Hale and how he really doesn't view him as anything more than a child. I mean, he's right. and you see yeah. it later in the in the scene where he comes to tell him about the lawman show, where he grabs him by the ear like yeah. you yeah. would a like a, a child, a he child. He like literally a spanks like him. A kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, I mean. I think that you sort of see that to him he is a very childlike person and that's the kind of like thrall that his uncle has over him. Sunrise would be interesting. I don't know whether I bring this in to with me or maybe maybe Scorsese even anticipates that. But I also see that scene as so indicative in the time period that we're living in right now where mm -hmm. people are talking about could we even teach killers of the fire moon with house bill 1775 and some right. of these kinds yeah. of things that some of these right. laws that are in place. Can you even teach killers of the fire moon now in school? I mean, 
I, I think it's one of those things that whenever she says, have you told all the truth? And it's like, I can't admit mm-hmm. to what I've done. Yeah. Okay, that to me seems very reflective of the societal moment that we're in. Can you tell all the truths or can you not admit? Or do you even know? Is there even, you know, like, do you feel like, I mean, everybody thinks that their truth is truth. Right. But but I'm also, again, just the earnest reaction there. It just captures what a, a sentiment I'm sure a lot of us have picked up on from a lot of people where they're like, no, that's not true, or that is true, mm-hmm. but they've convinced themselves that mm-hmm. it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Wait, mm-hmm. Can you teach this thing? Well, that thing never happened. Well, here's this movie that's with all this backed up information that says it did happen in this state, in this country. So did it happen or did it not happen? It happened. Okay, can we teach it? Well, no, why not? You know what I mean? Because it, it would make white kids feel bad. Right. I'm just saying that's, that's I feel like he's... But how does it make Native kids feel? Right, or, that's the problem. as far as the Tulsa race massacre, how does that make... African-American yeah. kids feel right. we can't talk about African-American excellence know, it, because then we have to talk about how black people tore it down. In, you in did school, read in the, school, yeah, the very first constitution of the Oklahoma, yeah. right? The state oh, yeah. Of Oklahoma. oh, yeah. Yeah. Very first law passed yeah. is a Jim Crow law. In Sorry, school. No, you're no, you're fine. No, in, in, in school. Yeah, it's 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 Martin Luther King and, and and Malcolm X. Like that's those are the figures that encompass the entirety of of, of black history and at least in, in, in my education. And I mean. Mm-hmm. I and knew one of them is definitely depicted as more desirable than the other. Absolutely, right. and there's and there's gray zone there too. I mean, right. people forget Martin. Luther, I mean, Martin Luther King was actual was also radical in certain ways yeah. too. Right. And, they, they only talk about the very specific things they liked about him. Exactly. Right? Yeah. This and, and mm-hmm. it's every Martin every every holiday. It's 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 they get his quotes, but they forget all the the, yeah. the under underlining. You know, and that's because we don't talk about that aspect. And that of it. when he was assassinated, which he was assassinated, which yeah. indicate that he was not. Liked by everyone, of course. Yeah. 75% of the Americans, the adult American adults hated him. Yeah. They all thought yeah. he was a bad, horrible thing for yeah. this country. I mean, and I think that... He was a complex human being. Uh, there was a I lot mean, more to him right. than the little sliver that we we, we romanticize about. Well, I mean, know, he so. at one point said that the biggest threat to racial inequality was the complacent moderate whites. You know what I mean? I'm just yeah. saying, like, and then, I don't. I, I brought that up because you see on Ernest's face a, a, a reaction I see from a lot of people when you try to ask them questions about mm-hmm. things like that. No, it's not easy truth. It's awful. It, but like, did it happen or did it not happen? So, just out of curiosity, can you name an indigenous equivalent to Martin Luther King or Malcolm X in in what you've learned in school? No, no, not a single one. Not, not from what I learned in school. And I was actually thinking that exact same thing. There isn't even a Native American equivalent to it. No. In fact, when I was in New York to see the Thanksgiving play and I went with my friend and she was talking about how Broadway is becoming size inclusive and da 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 da. And here we're going to see a play written by an, an indigenous woman. And I said, but do you see any indigenous stars on any of the stages? Yeah. And what about the director? And the ticket buyers and the producers. Yeah. yeah. Ari Erasure has been very deliberate. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that this is getting sunlight is very important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that said, uh, we're going to move on and talk about the final scene of the movie. Uh, bam, your time has come. The ending. So uh, <laughs> the film's ending, of course, uh, after that, immediately after that scene where we uh, see the fallout between Ernest and Molly, we cut to a live radio broadcast produced by the FBI and Lucky Strike. 
some decades later, a real show, by the way, for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, it revealed the fates of each of the characters with Scorsese himself stepping on stage to read uh, the uh, Molly's obituary and the final line about her death, which was that uh, no, there was no reference to the murders in the obituary. And then we cut to the Osage in present day celebrating uh, some sort of celebration. Um, can I can I start this one? Yeah. Yes, go for it. So if you talk to our grandparents about any anything, any traumas, residential schools, removal, you know, my my grandmother, when her Alzheimer's got really bad, she would see the soldiers chasing her. And but prior to that, if they never talked about it, this is something that they never talked about. And so it didn't surprise me that her obituary left that out because to her, we don't talk about that Yeah, yeah. because that's in the past. My grandpa pruner was like, no, you have to learn the ways of the enemy in order to survive this life. He had been taken to residential schools. So we don't talk about it. It's not mentioned. You move on in order to survive. Which brings me, I think is actually a really important context to, Notice it's Scorsese. It ties back to the who's direct telling the right, story yeah. question. Scorsese himself literally stepping in and saying there was uh, there was no mention of the murders. Did he tell a story that might not have gotten told by the Osage in a way? You know what I'm saying? Like if there's no mention of the murders, would it? And I just he's kind of like my, my perspective is he's stepping out here to a bring in the audience and say, Hey, look, this awful stuff happened. And we're sitting here digesting it like a podcast. We're actually a part of it right now. Technically. <laughs> yes. Um, in a way audio. Yes. Missing information. <laughs> uh, go. The FBI is great. We love them. No, not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes that file open. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so th- there's, that's number one. Number two, it feels very much like Scorsese acknowledging that he has limitations to how he can tell the story. He's like, all this stuff happened. I did the best I could. And there was no mention of the murders. Here's what I got. But also it's not the whole story. And which is why it was really powerful. They cut to the Osage in the final shot. And then, so just, just in case you guys don't know, their creation story is that they come from the stars. They mentioned it in passing in the show, but their creation is that they come from the stars. And what I really appreciated about that last powwow scene is how the crane or not a crane shot anymore drone how the drone shot comes up and then the whole thing looks like a galaxy mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. loved that mm-hmm. that's an incredible detail i had no idea yeah i didn't pick that connection that's, that's awesome that's, that's yeah but i thought that was really beautiful yeah. the layers of the ending i love because the ending is based on reality that the fbi that was actually part of Hoover's plan, you know, when we got the Hoover representative, he's never in there. But, you know, if you read the book and you know some about the history, this was really like a, like, was meant to be a foundational case for them to really establish the FBI. And part of how they sort of mythologized it and, and sort of burnished its status was through this case. And other big cases, they partnered with Lucky Strike and Hoover had writers and he actually did weigh in on the writing of these radio scripts that mythologized big cases of the FBI. So I love it because it's based in fact, but I love it because it was the radio plays were all about 
the FBI. They weren't about breaking down what happened to the Osage afterwards. So you're taking this format that was used by the the system, the white leader of the FBI, to remove to basically or... play up their role in it, and you're taking it back, and you're making it the 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 eulogy for Molly, basically. Yeah, I was really it moved me to tears both times when he read her obituary. Yeah, it, yeah, it got um, me. It got me good. I thought it was interesting that Scorsese chose himself. To, he's not uncommon for him to choose to. P- Put yeah. himself in his films as a cameo. You hear his voice in a couple of other yeah. places. Yeah, two other times. But he absolutely steps in up to the microphone to be the one to read her obituary, which I thought, to me, indicated the impact that the story had on him and the mm-hmm. experience had on him. But I also think I felt so many emotions whenever I read, whenever he read her obituary, the idea that she got to have a life that was somewhat peaceful after all of that that she got to have a life where, and it's it's such a mixed blessing, right, or a mixed curse that the, the murders aren't mentioned. You know, that she does get to have that sort of quiet obituary where her it's not bogged down with all of that grief and sorrow. But at the same time, you have then the erasure of all of this very important history that happened, and you don't know at the end of it because of who's doing the reading and all of this that we've talked about. You don't know whether she would have chosen for it to be that way or whether she would have chosen to make the murders part of it and it was suppressed. You don't know. You don't know what she would have picked for herself um, out of it. And so to me, that was just such an interesting ending that it was never, it was not mentioned in her obituary because it was like, was that her refusing to speak the trauma and not wanting that to be brought into her obituary? Or did somebody say, well, we've already forgotten about those. We've already put that out of our mind. I mean, just based on my experience, based on my experiences, it would be her not even considering that being part of her life. I think that's a historical And if that's the case, good for her. But I think there's an aesthetic uh, choice there or an effect, I guess. Uh, This, the ending is very much like Barbie to me. Um, Where we have this, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this narrative in which um, everyone's trying to control this woman's outcome, mm-hmm. and essentially removing or tricking the agency from her, her, her own decision making. And the the final moment there is so powerful because she finally is able to just walk away. The 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 the, the scam is over. She does not have to rely on him anymore. Um, she can go have the life that she wants. And, you know, the, the filmmaker here who has nothing to do with her life also has no control over what, what we see and what we don't see. The character has complete control. And we're left in this mystery. Why? Uh, what? Uh, how long? Um, how did she feel? It, it kind of doesn't matter, really. At the end of the day, the same thing with Barbie. Where it's like it doesn't really matter – why she's getting the test or, or like going to the gynecologist. It doesn't matter what her um, identity status is. What, what matters is that she's able to make the decision by For herself and have that decision. And it doesn't what we what information we have and who has control over that information doesn't matter. I adored that ending, even if I had to explain it to a seven year old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um I will say that it's it's also incredible that the the limitations that we recognize, like the the sound effects of the show, are obviously fabricated and fake, and it's it's exactly what we're talking about. He's doing the best that he can, 
Um, that the, there's also the recognition of like the sponsorship yep. interceding. Yep. Um, but then also uh, it parallels the beginning, I think. Um, all, all the information is told to us about, she talks about the murders. That's like the first thing we hear from Molly. Us, as an audience, we hear who's been murdered. We know their name. We know what's been described about them. And she's already talked about it. And, and by the time we get to the narrative, at the end of the narrative, we already know as an audience, we know that that's the case and we know that she can do it. She can talk about this, but she's choosing not to at the end. Um, so I feel like those two things really have to kind of work with each other. And that's like, a, again, like a masterful thing on part of Scorsese, the fact that he's balancing it out from the beginning to the end. Um, and uh, again, I think this is also about, you know, obviously it's him on stage. Obviously it's him in front of the storytelling. And he's also sort of like implying this sort of white savior narrative. If it's the FBI that we're upholding um, and he's complicit, he's on stage with them. Yeah. He is the director probably, you know? Um, and I think that's uh, also a brave thing to be able to say, I am complicit with this and I will never be able to give you the information the right way from their perspective. And in that way, you know, it's it's uh, I think it sort of turns this idea of the white savior narrative yeah. in a new direction. Yeah. Um, well, and then the symmetry of the burying of the pipe at the beginning and then ending with the modern day Osage yeah. still practicing their culture on that prairie. Um, I felt was so important that it, he didn't end it with himself. Yeah. He didn't end right. it with Molly's obituary, even though it's yeah. Molly's story to whatever limited extent it was able to be. But the the whole symmetry of the burying of the pipe that this culture, they all thought it was, I mean, they all thought it was dead and buried too, right? right. We bury the pipe. Our, our children will speak another language and things like that. But then you come to the modern day Osage who helped make the picture. They didn't maybe get to lead the picture. They weren't above the line. They weren't the writers and directors, but they helped make it. And they were the ones who brought their language and culture and dance and, and, costumes yeah. and wares to the making of the film and that at the end they're still going so all the predictions of Hale and all of the other whites of doesn't matter if you kill indians we've been trying to kill them for decades yeah. and one of these days we're going to kill them no you won't you my, didn't succeed sorry my, my husband when we watched the film um said the that he interpreted that ending you know um as resilience mm -hmm. this that is what this is like everything that's been taken from them because you can look at it and say so much is gone, but then you look at this and like, but they, but yet they still, the, but yet the drum still goes, you know what I mean? And I love that. I love that as a, as a, as a button to the end of the film is that through all this disgusting history that we just, you know, just dissected, you know, those people are still holding that, that down. I love that. Um, and also I agree with you about Martin Scorsese. I love the last line that he says about Molly's, but I was, I was, I was cringing at one point because I thought I knew what the last line was going to be. And I was wrong because I thought he said there were no mentions of the murders. And I thought the next line was going to be until now. Oh. And, and I, I, my heart, I just thought like, oh, please don't say that. Because if you say that, I'm going to hate this moment. And it, 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 the fact that he didn't is why I got emotional. Yeah. You know, because it's like he said to himself, like, I'm not I'm not taking credit for this story. I'm telling it but I'm not taking credit for it. I'm not looking for your, 
you know, that, you know, I'm not blindsiding this moment where look how good I did, you know, sort of thing, you know, like uh, I brought this story to you, but it's so uh, that was an important omission that maybe in a lesser film, I think someone would have wrote that. So, yeah, just incredibly creative way. Instead of, like you said earlier, doing like a little flash and here's where they ended up. It was uh, a lot more thought provoking. And clearly, as you can hear listeners, a lot of different layers to it, a lot of di- different things you can bring to it and interpret it. And uh, I look forward to hearing more people talk about the film and, and the ending after they see it. Um, like I said, my big takeaway from the ending is a twofold, but the big one is we, the audience are just as complacent, uh, complicit to the system that is enabling this violence. And what are we going to do with that? I had a whole other section listen to the podcast to talk about that, but we don't have time. So uh, with that said, is there any other final words you guys would like to say about Killers of the Flower Moon today? I hope people see it. Yeah. I mean, I hope I don't, they don't let the the three and a half hour runtime or whatever, you know, as much as I feel like it operates in an imperfect world, I think it's um, definitely a worthwhile film. And if you don't know the story, it is a very good entry point into yeah. The story, which has a lot of wider implications about what you think you know about American history. Yeah. And if you do go see it and you start to explain it to an Osage person, maybe don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't. If you're a white person, now's a great time to listen. 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 Yeah. yeah. Always a good time to listen. That's true. That's true. Um Robert De Niro was really good. Had a whole bit on the podcast. Didn't have time to cover it, but wow, what an evil mofo! Yeah, yeah, evil, yeah. evil. Do all well, the way he's able to convey charming, yeah. with, with cunning. He says all the right stuff, gives money to the right causes, and yet everything is ulterior. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and you start to see it. I thought it was brilliant the way you start to see it unraveling. It's that whenever the KKK goes, guy goes, you know, you're broadcasting it a little bit at this point. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. At this point, you're taking it a little far, don't you think? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not unlike our probably current system of politics oh yeah oh i mean i was very clearly like a parallel to me yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. um uh, one thing i will say is that uh this is related to scorsese i'm just sort of thematically talking about scorsese on this one but um uh i feel like the aviator is um probably what i see as the closest film to a personal film for him because that film we look at a character who uh, the world perceives one way as a movie maker, but I think the character really wants to be known as someone who does something else. In that case, uh-huh. someone who advances aviation. But I, I think for Scorsese, I think he really wants to be a historian or a history teacher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like this film is a demonstration of those particular skills, synthesizing history being able to articulate why it's important, how it's a reflection of today or vice versa. And uh, those are the skills that I think ultimately we'll walk away with is like, that's why he's a master Yeah, is he's using the medium, not because he loves cinema, because he understands it enough to be able to articulate something that's important to him. And that's history. And um, in a time where it seems like history is often overlooked, uh, it feels like the fact that he's done all this work for us is 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 worth our attention and even if we have our debates about it the fact that he's done all this work is important yeah 
Because someone has. Yeah, he absolutely. Some, yeah. And again, it's like learning history. So somebody's going to be, oh, yeah, I never knew about this. And they're going to investigate. Well, he could just be out there making Marvel movies. And I'm not even joking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's this guy is one of the most skilled craftsmen alive at, at this craft. And he could be making a bunch of other things that would make him a lot more money, yeah. frankly. But right. he's choosing to, as you put it, on historical dramas, really dig into these rich, complex themes about America and greed and white mm-hmm. privilege, all these different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and isn't it great that, I mean, that people will see this and what you hope is that they will go to Osage County and they, you can learn a lot about the history of it. The Osage Nation has a great museum. They have a, a lot of places where you can go and you can learn about this history firsthand. And I think that it will cause a, a lot of people to make that journey to where hopefully they go and they go to Pahuska for something more than the Pioneer Woman, uh, which is a whole other subject. Um, but they is will it? go and they will. He said, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, is it though? Um, well, I will just say the, the, the who did uh, Hale sell his land to? Different podcasts. Yeah, different, different podcasts. podcasts. Yeah, but I mean, say at the same time, it's the same podcast. Um, but no, I, I hope that people go to, to I mean, because there's a lot of great artists. There's a lot of great Osage historians. There's a lot of great Osage storytellers. And they're, they're still there in Osage County practicing their culture. And they are open to you coming to learn about it in a, as long as you're doing it respectfully. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's the great part about this is I hope that will cause people to learn more and that they can go to the source to learn about it if they choose to do that. And I hope that people will. Well said. I think a great way to, to wrap up the conversation. Um, all right, listeners. Well, this has been an epic, not quite as long as the movie, but, you know, creep, creeping up on it. Uh, where can our listeners keep up with you and all of the amazing things you all are doing, um, either on the Internet or out in our communities? Uh, Bam, of course, I'll start with you. Um, Oklahoman.com really is just the website of the Oklahoman. So I'm on um, whatever they call Twitter these days. At X. Bam OK X. Makes it sound so much more sexy and mysterious than it is. So, um, but anyway, uh, I'm on there. Um, I'm on Facebook. Um, but yeah, mostly at Oklahoman.com. Um, you can find the landing page for a lot. I worked very hard on the coverage for Killers of the Flower Moon. And um, I hope that I I had a lot of people who were made themselves vulnerable and trusted me with their story. And I, I hope that I um, lived up to the trust as always. That's what my hope always is. Well, I will just say I had a lot of friends send me it when we were discussing the movie. They were sending me articles, and I looked at the byline, and I was like, oh, that's that's, that's Brandy. That's nice. <laughs> Sunrise Tipicani? How about you? Yeah, you could find me at Sunrise Tipicani on Instagram. Um, it says sunrise.tipicani. Um, I do a lot of posting on the stories about Dead Center functions. You can go to deadcenter.org. Um, I'm also on the Real Indigenous Podcast. But Angela will probably talk about that. Um, I guess you can follow me on Letterboxd, but it's just... It, there's no reviews. It's just what I no, want. but you just I know get, what he's watched. I, I know. I just get and to look at. I guess the, li- the list is how I comment about stuff sometimes. I, I, I get to see how many more movies you've seen than me, which is a lot. A lot. A lot. lot. Like uh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Angela, how about you? Where can people follow you in your work online? So, Real Indigenous Podcast is on Instagram under Real Indigenous Pod. We are also on the artist formerly known as Twitter, as Real Indigenous, and on Facebook. And you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Our next episode will be 
with our Osage hosts. We have two Osage hosts. So, so as soon as they've finished processing, because they were understandably cautious about going to see this. So, sure. so as soon as they finish and are ready to talk about it, then we will sure. talk about it. All right. Well, that'll be one to look out to as another follow-up pod. Leron Chapman. Um, you can follow my um, reviews on Letterbox at black underscore Senna underscore man. They're so good. Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nothing but a treasure trove of reviews from Leron. Yeah, I'm on. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you. I'm on Letterbox at C Masters Talk. I'm Letter C Masters Talk. Not nearly as uh, occasionally I try to write uh, as much as Leron does, but usually <laughs> it's just like a tweet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let, let her see Master Talk, Twitter, uh, Instagram, um, Letterboxd, all the things. Uh, or you can follow us, uh, anything we do here at the Cinematropolis at the cinematropolis.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hey, big shout out to you, uh, Brandy, Sunrise, Angela, Laurent, for joining us for this review discussion tonight. And thank you, listeners. We'll catch you again next time when we return on Wednesday, November 15th with a review of David Fincher's The Killer, because that's the buzzword this year, is killing things. Uh, The film debuts on Netflix on November 10th. Till next time.